Hello and welcome to Understanding the Times. In this webinar, we're going to seek to understand the times in which we live so that we may know what we should do as Christians in our generation. We're inspired by the sons of Issachar, the story from 1 Chronicles chapter 12. And there, these sons of Issachar were full of understanding. They knew the times that they lived in. They knew what Israel had to do, which was to make David king over the whole nation. And so for us as Kensington Temple and LCC members, we have been working together for many, many years to see what we can do to make a difference, to be salt and light in our society, in our families and our communities. Although it's our primary task to preach the gospel, to bring good news and to make disciples and to bring them to maturity, our desire also is to bring transformation to our society. And in order to do that, we need to know exactly what is going on in our world to understand contemporary culture. Now, there are many approaches to understanding contemporary culture. There's the prophetic understanding. What is God saying to us? What's he doing in our generation? Then we can look at the problems facing society, injustice, poverty, global warming, terrorism, globalism, racism, and uh, see what we can do to make the world a better place. We also need to understand the philosophies and ideologies that are at work in the contemporary world. Um, and then come to this conclusion that it seems the Western world is abandoning its Judeo-Christian heritage in favor of a number of philosophies and ideologies, secular humanism, you know, post-Christian society, which is defined by its antagonism to Christian truths and values, post-modernism, passing through various forms, uh, whether it's the deconstructionist form or the applied uh, uh, post-modern modernism or whether the reified post-modernism of today where it takes actual meta-narratives and um, major kind of known knowns, truths, which is quite extraordinary to think of postmodernism speaking about truths, but it's their truth. And then we can also see the effects of non-Christian religions and the growth of non-Christian religions and does that challenge us as Christians. Now behind many of the philosophies and ideologies uh, in our society, there is one one undercurrent, one trend, one overriding worldview that is gaining dominance. And this is wokeism or critical theory. And what once began as a kind of mild form of political correctness has now hardened into an authoritarian social orthodoxy. And if we don't comply with this new social orthodoxy, uh, when then we are in trouble. We are liable to be deemed bad people, worthy of ridicule, shaming, even cancelling. J.K. Rowling is an example of somebody that they tried to cancel. There was a backlash after she tweeted support for a transphobic researcher, or transphobic in inverted commas. And this researcher believed that it was not possible just to call somebody who's transgender to say that they are truly women, true women. And that's controversial and perhaps hurtful for some, but it, it really led to a massive furore and they would have cancelled J.K. Rowling. Of course, she's the author of that great Harry Potter series. They would have uh, 
um, cancelled her if she had not had the money and the clout and the power to fight back. So what is woke? Now, a woke person is somebody who's said to have woken up, of course, but woken up particularly to the need of social justice in relation to those who are discriminated on the grounds of race, sex, gender, sexuality, disability, and somebody who's actively working to eliminate discrimination. And so in many ways, I hope we're all woke in this sense that we are awakened to the discrimination and we want to do something about it. But actually woke has come to mean something far more technical and something far more extreme than what I've just described. It's a hidden agenda. Actually, it's becoming less and less hidden. And it is behind so much that is going on in society that causes division and problems, uh, takes away freedom of speech, and is a threat to us as Christians, or at least a challenge to us as Christians, as Christianity is very much in view as being on the side of the oppressors. Robin DiAngelo, a well-known and highly influential critical race and social justice educator writes, oppression involves institutional control, ideological domination, and the imposition of the dominance groups, dominant groups share on the minoritized group. No individual member of the dominant group has to do anything specific to, to oppress a member of the minoritized group. Now, that's interesting. She goes on to say, the societal default is oppression. There are no spaces free of it. Thus the question becomes, um, how is it manifesting here, rather than is it manifesting here? What that means is there need not be a specific instance of racism, transphobia, homophobia, sexism, or anything. There need not be an express manifestation of it intentionally, but it is, it's present. It's present, so the question is not is it happening, but how is it happening? The Christian Institute, who it is involved in bringing Christian influence in a secular society, calls this identity politics and describes it like this. Identity politics is a divisive ideology that has come to dominate public debate. It fractures society into groups formed around characteristics such as gender, sexuality or ethnicity, pitting people against one another in an arms race of victimhood. It also shuts down debate, expressing anything but the most socially liberal views on issues such as transgenderism, homosexuality or abortion, makes you unfit for any public office or platform. And then this briefing on identity politics goes on to say, this explains more about what identity politics is and why it is such a threat to freedom, which includes religious liberty. But this is not a specifically Christian problem. Even liberal people and people who are not committed Christians or or even atheists or reject Christianity have come under the problem. For example, Selina Todd, 
was instructed by university authorities not to attend lectures without two male bodyguards. Why? Trans activists made threats against her after she stated publicly that trans women should not be admitted to women-only spaces. And this was this is something that uh, many old-style feminists are working on. They, they are not happy with um, transgender women using female toilets. And they have their various reasons for that. It's not because they are transphobic, but there is a view, a viewpoint, which they are not allowed to express. And then we have Nicholas Christakis, who in 2015, this Yale professor, was surrounded by outraged students in the university grounds and accused of racism. Why? His wife, also a Yale professor, had earlier emailed students suggesting that they should exercise their own judgment when deciding whether to wear Halloween costumes borrowed from other cultures. Christakis was called disgusting and accused of having created space for violence to happen. Well, certainly that situation got way out of hand and how much of that was due to this woke agenda. We're going to examine more on this work agenda, how we can recognize it, and what we can do about it in this webinar, Understanding the Times. Thank you, Colin, and welcome to the many, many of you who have joined us since the start of our session at 10 o'clock this morning. Um, just a quick recap, I mentioned this earlier on this today, we are in a webinar called Understanding the Times. And the, the core of the webinar is made up of five short teaching sessions and interspersed with the teaching sessions, you'll be hearing some of our panel members, you'll see some of those faces. And our panel has been selected from a wide array of backgrounds, business, law, family, um, and we'll, we'll offer a wide perspective. So welcome for those of you who joined us. Let, let me just quickly do a recap on what I heard in Colin's last session as Christians. One of the things we're called to is to bring transformation, but to bring transformation to a society, we need to understand contemporary culture and philosophies. We can't sit unprotected and be developing strategies in a response to this without improving and increasing our knowledge of what's actually going on there. He's introduced us to the concepts of critical theory and woke, wokeism, but we, we haven't explored or said a lot about this yet. In fact, as we go into session two and three, You'll hear so much more about these two terms. But what we do know is that there is an agenda. And we want to start today by understanding there is an agenda that we need to be aware of as Christians. Thirdly, we heard that, uh, based on Robert D'Angelo, that the, the system exists whether we like it or not. It's systemic, that there's institutional control and domination. And the question when we see things, so for example, like racism, isn't, the question is not where is it happening, but more where, how is it being manifested? Okay, so whether we're participating or not, whether we like it or not, one of the, the teachings of wokeism and critical theory is that the system is racist in this particular example or whatever else that we're describing. And lastly, he touched on something called identity politics, which is a divisive ideology fracturing society into smaller groups. And not only are they fractured into smaller groups, but the, the intention is to try and shut you down as much as possible. 
And you'll find woven in today's webinar, as we get more and more examples, we'll see this clearly taking place today already, where it's very difficult to offer your point of view on some of these changes that are shifting. Now, I've, I've asked uh, our youth pastor, Pastor Andrew, to just come on, Andrew, if you'd unmute really quickly. Andrew, you, you work with a large youth ministry, predominantly black ministry. And you, you were mentioning to us, you've seen some of these changes begin to take place already. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're experiencing working with the large number of youth that you do? Yeah, um, the, the, the change, the change is, has been quite big. Um, young people are, are speaking differently. Um, and if I'm honest with you, a lot of young people are angry with the church. Um, it, it's, it's quite interesting. There's so much um, resemblance between kind of like the, the attitude I'm hearing now and the attitude that was actually against Martin Luther King um, when he was doing um, his activism. Young people, they want to do. Um, they want to be more active. They want to have their say. They want to be in a position to influence. And, and concerning the whole, the, the George Floyd um, situation, that, that riled up in people, things that were already there. And a lot of young Christians that I was speaking to in that season, they, they felt in a way that, well, this is an opportunity. I can have my say. I'm connected to this situation because I'm either black myself or I have friends who are black and I just believe that that's wrong anyway, period. And it was an opportunity for them to actually, you know, take action. And for young people, when you give um, young people the opportunity to take action, they'll cease it as, as long as there is a connection to, to the activity. And um, so a lot of Christians who are speaking to who are who are young said, well, the church aren't doing anything. So I'm going to do this because it's the right thing to do. <clears throat> so but what was young people were angry. They were in um, emotional states and, you know, um, and especially some of the, the, uh, the, the American young people who I'm, in, who I'm in contact as well, they would be sending me emails and, and, and saying, you know, at the end of the day, um, if, if we don't do something, this will continue. It's like we, we are going to permit a continuation of what is happening. And then, you know, then there's the history of it all. Uh, let's focus more on, on on this country. You know, I've got so many friends, um, and my myself who who've been stopped by police for no reason. And and basically, this the whole the whole George Floyd incident brought into the remembrance of a lot of people my age and younger the moments when they felt that the color of their skin led to them being um, dealt differently. And essentially the attitude was enough is enough. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not gonna sit down and, 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 and accept all the stuff that is, that is going on. This was the, this, now the biggest issue that I had in communicating with these people who essentially were angry and, 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 and needed to be restored, peace had to be restored, was that from that mindset of anger, it, it they it allowed them to to go on the protest i knew so many young people that were protesting and quite frankly some people were just hoodlum i knew there was young people who just went there for the sake of just you know being amongst the crowd so there was there was different mindsets but one thing that collected all of them was that they just wanted to be out and have their say 
Thank you. Thank you so much, Andrew. And, and you'll get a chance to explore more of that later on the meeting if we, if we get some time. But uh, throughout the session, Colin will come back to um, the right kind of activism. And as Christians, how do we identify that and what's our next step? So thank you so much for your input. Let's go to video number two. As I mentioned to you earlier on, we will give you some background and we'll teach you a little bit about the concepts of woke and critical theory. We'll, we'll do some challenging, we'll, we'll, we'll critique it. And then we'll talk about how the Christian church should move as the next step, how we should move. But uh, let's go to this next session, which begins to explore woke at work. So it's actually taking place. Welcome to the second session in Understanding the Times. And in this session, I'm going to look at woke at work in society. But what is woke? Stay woke is derived from the phrase stay awake. And it's an internet slang term often used to demonstrate the need for awareness of an issue, particularly those relating to social justice. And so far as that goes, it's all well and good. However, behind the term woke, particularly when it's used by some of our more activist members of society, it uh, is a philosophy, an ideology, actually, which is quite destructive and divisive in society. Let's have a look and see if we can find it at work. The Cosmopolitan magazine, February 2021 issue, has this cover. This is healthy, it says. Obviously, the magazine is hitting out against fatism, the belief that larger people are victims of oppression. And it's not talking about just insensitivity, and making people feel bad about their weight, but it is also actually politicizing fatness where an identity group's lived experience is even more valid than scientific evidence. There are websites that you can go to that will direct you to doctors who will never say that you are obese. There's a doctoral thesis from Karlstad University in 2017, a systematic stigmatization of fat people. Susan Brandheim says in the abstract of her thesis, says a pervasive stigmatization of fat people was made intelligible from a systemic perspective. What is this, if not the complete politicizing of obesity and people who struggle with their weight and politicizing it so that people are silenced from any form of criticism? Now, the underlying text of critical theory has to do with silencing other people's opinions and what they have to say on a whole range of matters. Take this, no uterus, no opinion. Well, this is a Friends video segment from the television program Friends. I find it highly amusing and it brings a more serious point. Let's have a look at this. Oh, wait, is everything okay? Yeah, everything's fine. What, you, you, your parents should come to the hospital. What? What was it? What happened? It's something called Braxton Hicks contraction. Oh, oh. <laughs> Thank God, that's no big deal. Most women don't even feel them. Okay, no uterus, no opinion. <laughs> I don't know if you find that amusing. I think it is brilliant, brilliant comedy, brilliant timing. And makes a point. Particularly, we talk about male insensitivity to what women go through. Very, very valid point. And if it stopped there, that would be fine. Actually, no uterus, no opinion has become highly politicized. Men shouldn't make laws about women's bodies. All right. 
If you are a male working in the legal profession or in politics, do you really have no say? What about scientific facts? What about medical facts? You really have no say? And is this simply the imposition of the opinion of a dominant power group in society, that is, the Western cisgender heteronormative old white males? And even when it comes to such things as the abortion debate, it, it uh, moves away from life begins at conception or issues looking at the science to you have no right to say anything, you have no right to speak into this situation. What about FIFA? This uh, in 2020 with the tragic and unlawful death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota, many people adopted the Black Lives Matter slogan and many people also, particularly in sport and football, took the knee. I doubt whether all of those people or many of those people were wanting to buy into the agenda and the philosophy of Black Lives Matter as a movement, but many of them felt sympathy with this uh, as, as, as a social issue. Now, the question is, was taking the knee woke at work? Was woke taking and capitalizing on the sentiment and feeling in society and politicizing for their agenda? Well, you need to decide on that. Remember when the England team was fined for £35,000 by FIFA for wearing poppies on Remembrance Day in 2016? Well, that wasn't okay, but apparently this is okay. So what I'm saying is that sometimes public life is highly selective in terms of what it's allowed to support or not allowed to support. Moving on to education, uh, we have here from Stonewall, which is uh, an activist pressure group, creating an LBGT inclusive uh, primary curriculum. And from their website, they say that the, this inclusion and celebration of difference, they want to bring it alive in primary school classroom with inclusive curriculum guide. From choosing set text in English to using LGBT inclusive statistics in maths, our curriculum guide helps you embed your inclusion into every area of the curriculum. Well, do you think that that is balanced? Do you think that Stonewall or the LBGT agenda is, is being overly pushed here? Do you not think that there might be some balance there? Are there other points of view? Well, we find when it, when it right, comes right down to it, it's very difficult for any other voice other than the voice which is approved of by woke to be heard anywhere. Now, um, one of the other aspects which we've already touched on is, is transgender. And so, as soon as you separate gender from biological sex, gender is up here, not down there, then you are really creating a huge division and don't expect everybody to go along with it. Because if you separate biological sex from gender, how many genders are there? Well, as many as we want, that's what they say. Whether it's from two binary genders, male, female, with a possible reference to a very tiny, tiny number of people from intersex, uh, who belong to the intersex category, you can go from two or three to as many as you want. The last count was 100. The BBC films teach children of a hundred genders or more, so said the Times newspaper uh, in a recent article. 
And they go on to say that the broadcaster has accused, has been accused of sowing confusion in classrooms uh, by using materials to be shown to children as young as nine. And here we have some samples of LGBT flags. We post this if you support LGBT. Well, there are a good number, more than a couple of dozen uh, genders there. So not only in education or in the media, but also in the world of business, in the world of advertising, for example. Today, people are employing diversity specialists to help companies become more conformed to the work agenda in the office place, the workspace, and also in advertising. So here we have Woke at Work in, the, in Marks and Spencers, LGBT lettuce, guacamole, bacon, and tomato, uh, put out to coincide with major LGBT events. How about good old Ben and Jerry's? Are they politicizing ice cream? Now more than ever, Vermont is for lovers, for lovers of marriage equality. Hubby and hubby. Now, what I want to point out is, is that we can think about these things, we can reflect on these things, and we don't have to have a knee-jerk reaction. We can say, what's really happening here? But the problem is, you can't discuss it. You can't debate it. You can't speak out about it. Otherwise, you will be cancelled. Many people are being cancelled or no platformed or even deplatformed because their views do not confirm, conform to woke or contemporary critical theory. Everything has become politicized and woe betide you if you speak out of turn. Freedom of speech and freedom of opinion? I don't think so. Now here we have an example from the United States of America where the kindness yoga group was called out apparently on June the 29th, 2020 for, uh, because of uh, they did not comply with expectations concerning a woke agenda. They were criticized for their performance activism. Basically what they were doing was they were speaking on social media that they were supportive of uh, anti-racism uh, activists, but didn't do enough in real life to expand the community beyond white culture. And uh, there were loads of resignations. In fact, eight or nine of these studios were closed down. And this is, this is a yoga a meditation center, a place where you'd expect there to be tranquility and zen, zen, zen. But no, racial hatred was stirred up in the midst of this. And this, this guy, he didn't charge people to go, only pay what you can pay, was bending over backwards to try and accommodate and understand. But in the end, he said, well, I guess I just, my white privilege, I just don't understand, I didn't, didn't understand well enough. Now, it's very important for us to try and understand, but believe me, there is beyond this sympathy, empathy, trying to understand, trying to be sensitive, there is an agenda, a very strong agenda. This agenda is strong enough to close down a gallery exhib exhibition in Toronto. Uh, there was outrage after a Toronto artist borrowed from a style of an acclaimed in indigenous painter. And on the Monday when it was announced that this uh, exhibition was to go ahead and then the owners and the uh, managers of the gallery saw what it was about, received many, many complaints by Tuesday, 
she had been cancelled and there was no opportunity for any comeback. And there was an, uh, also uh, um, a cultural artist who was from the right cultural group. He said that this artistic appropriation is a form of cultural genocide. Then we take the case of Kevin Price, a Labour councillor who resigned in October 2020. He was a councillor in the Cambridge City Council. He was also a porter in the Cambridge University in Clare College. And he resigned as a Labour councillor because he couldn't agree with a Liberal Democrat uh, statement which was, which was tabled, which said trans women are women, trans men are men, non-binary individuals are non-binary. Now, he explains, he said that I, I, I couldn't say this because in all conscience I couldn't agree with this and many, many women would be, he actually would send a, spill, a chill down the spine of, of many, many women. He felt strongly about it. He resigned and yet Clare College and the uh, students of Clare College wanted very much to have him lose his job. Varsity News said that this was not acceptable and made people feel unsafe. Now the universities, as you see, are not immune to this. So College Oxford uh, uh, told um, a, a speaker, history professor, that they were not just no platform, they were deplatformed. Selena Todd had been due to speak at the Exeter College event, which was marking the 50th anniversary of the Women's Liberation Conference. She was speaking on women's liberation, but her invitation was rescinded after she was accused of transphobia. And uh, basically, she had said something that did not coincide with or was not acceptable to the new activists, those who propose a woke agenda. And so it seems to me that freedom of speech is under threat for so many people in society, not just for us. Your rights end where my feelings begin. Thank you again, uh, Colin. And uh, again, welcome to the many, many of you who have joined us uh, while this uh, training video was going on. We are in a webinar called Understanding the Times. We are looking at five training videos pre-recorded by Pastor Colin. Uh, that was video number two. And in the process, we want to give you the background to critical theory and woke, uh, help you understand it a little bit better, help you understand where you can see it at work. And we'll, we'll do some critiques later on, as well as determine how we move ahead as a church and as a body of Christ. I'm going to ask uh, Peter McElvain to unmute and join us. Peter, if you would just uh, join us. Now, yep. Peter, first of all, Peter, um, our prayers are with you and Deanna and the boys. I know you've just made it through COVID, and uh, it looks like we've gotten over the difficult part of that, but really glad you can be with, here to, with us today. Peter, you get an opportunity in your day-to-day -day work to work quite closely with government and policy. Tell us a little bit about where you've begun to notice some of this shift, particularly as it relates to your inability to offer a perspective or point of view. 
Um, whoa. Uh, so there are two. There's one that's happened to Lord Pearson very recently. I'll let you know that he hasn't actually gone public about it, but I'll let you know that. But the first time probably was in City Hall. I worked there as a senior researcher. Um, and I, that was the first time I'd worked in the civil service where it is massively restricted on what you can and cannot say. So there they talked all about they had a, a diversity um, and inclusion officer. And actually, before I got the job, uh, I had applied, been accepted, and then was told I couldn't get the job because of my views on Islam. So I, again, the, the two assembly members that, who had asked me to apply had raised this concern and they were told, no, the views that Peter McIlvenna has on Islam are not accepted in City Hall. So they pushed it further and then I was allowed to have a phone call with the diversity and inclusion officer. So after 15 minutes of discussing <clears throat> what my views were and that I had a, uh, I disagreed with the teaching of Islam, but that didn't mean that I had any issue with working with someone who was a Muslim. And anyone who was not a Muslim, by definition, has rejected Islam. So after a 50-minute conversation, I was told if I put my views down on an email, then I could be accepted and I could get the job. So eventually I, I got the job. Um, but working in City Hall, we went, they had a lot of diversity and inclusion training events, but one was Stonewall ran a regular uh, LGBT ally event. And <clears throat> I was curious, I wanted to know what happened. We were strongly encouraged to go. So I thought, well, what can I lose? I'll have to learn to bite my tongue. And I want to be there to learn and listen and understand where they're coming from, not to attack and push down. So it was a whole day of intense indoctrination on LGBT, where how you as a heterosexual can, can accept and promote an LGBT agenda, how you can be an ally. So that was a whole day. But the shocking thing was the amount of money they spend, that's seven and a half thousand pounds for that training session. And that's happening all across the country. Um, and there were two young people, maybe 22, 23, and they were doing all this seminar. And people there, 25 people who attended, and they could not believe how, uh, how hurtful and hateful they had been within themselves. And they had these 22-year-olds had come to explain to them how all their thinking was wrong, how they had to change everything. And now they were able to go back into the workplace changed uh, as individuals. But can I just tell you just a very short 30 second, one thing that Lord Pearson has come across, which really has shocked all of us and a lot of other peers, was Lord Pearson regularly puts down questions on Islam and regularly has debates with the table office. The table office or the body within the House of Lords that put down, accept written questions. So every member of the Lords is allowed to put down as many written questions to the government as they want. Uh, it's like an FY request in effect. And then the government must respond within two weeks. And the questions can be on anything on government policy. So he had put down a question on Islam and the grooming gangs. <clears throat> and the emails went back and forward. And then he suddenly got an email to say his question had caused offense in the table office and that he must go away and read the code of conduct because if he continued in this questioning, then 
he could be open to uh, being questioned under the code of conduct, which means he could be removed from the House of Lords. That was simply because he is asking a question on Islam. Already they've changed. So no law, they don't talk about Islamic terrorism. They talk about Islamist terrorism. They changed that after Lord Pearson asked so many questions. They said, this is not allowed. But there is a real concern amongst many of the peers. There are about 30, 40 peers, 40 peers on side of Lord Pearson on free speech. And they're all extremely concerned that a staff member in the table office is now telling peers what they can and cannot ask the government. So yeah, that's what we're dealing with in the last three weeks. And it's quite a change in how the House of Lords used to be the, the freedom of speech, the center of freedom of speech has now completely changed. Thank you so much, Peter. And if we had more time, Peter, I'm sure we could let you go on because you get the opportunity to work side by side by policymakers. But just a recap of training and teaching video two. If, if you're wondering how wide this movement is, it is very wide. Some of the examples we've seen are sport, education, business, family, law. Um, one of the common principles we seem to be running into again and again, and Peter has used an example of that, is you don't really have a point of view, or if you do, no one really wants to listen to it. And thirdly, they, they are serious. Uh, Colin gave the example of kindness yoga. Now it's primarily happening through uh, social media, so Twitter and Instagram, but they can pick it and demonstrate as well. In this particular situation Colin gave, the organization was saying the right words, but they were shut down by pressure through Twitter simply because the makeup of their customer base continued to be white. So their follow-up action steps were not consistent with what they were saying they were doing. And that's how serious organizations behind this work movement can be. Let's move to session number three, as we go a little bit deeper in understanding the work movement and basic principles of contemporary critical theory. So let's have a look at that video now. Hello, and welcome to the third session in our webinar, Understanding the Times. And in this session, we're going to look at how we can understand and recognize the woke movement, or looking at the basic principles of contemporary critical theory, because that's what lies behind the woke movement. And in this session, I'm relying heavily on Dr. Neil Shevney's work, and his website is there, shevneyapologetics.com. And he examines in great detail contemporary critical theory. If you want to understand our culture, if you want to understand the woke movement, if you want to, want to understand what many progressives mean by such terms as social justice, div diversity, equity, and inclusion, you need to understand critical theory. So what is critical theory? Critical theory is a broad area of knowledge that originated with the Frankfurt School um, in the 1930s, and it's expanded and evolved dramatically since then. And there's so many disciplines that have come out of this, such as critical race theory, critical pedagogy, queer theory, and highly influential theories within the social justice movement. In the book Beyond Critique, Bradley Levinson writes, Karl Marx alone invites consensus as the first true critical theorist. Critical theory draws heavily on Marx's ideas, but not necessarily on his ideas about economics, 
Karl Marx taught that in order to bring about a just society and an equal society, you had to control the means of production and then also of distribution. Now, means of production, economic production. Critical theory follows that to an extent, recognizes that Karl Marx's revolution didn't really work. And they say, now we have to take charge of cultural production, the means of cultural production and cultural dis dis distribution. The Frankfurt School developed this, uh, started with those ideas in the 1930s, and then also the postmodernism of 1960s and the 19, right through the 1990s, postmodernism, central idea of that is there's no such thing as objective truth, it doesn't really exist or it's inaccessible, and truth itself is a social construct imposed upon society by the dominant group, mainly through controlling language and discourse in order to preserve its own power. So this shows why woke is so concerned to control what people say. They believe that power is expressed through knowledge and knowledge is formed through discourse and it is always through the dominant power, the hegemony of the day. And so that's why they want to very much to control what we say. And so the, the kind of constant, constant monitoring of speech, getting us to second guess whether we're allowed to say this or whether we're allowed to say that, this is very much going right back to this kind of theory. Now, critical theory is quite hard to define precisely. It can be used narrowly of the Frankfurt School or it can use, be used broadly to refer to many of these other critical and social theories. Now, if you try to, to categorize critical theory as a whole, you, you, you really struggle because it's, it's, it's non-essentialism at work here. In other words, there is nothing that really, really gets it. It expresses in so many different ways. So you've got to take a pragmatic approach. So if you think of such terms as intersectionality, white privilege, white fragility, colorblind racism, internalized oppression, lived experience, heteronormativity, and so forth. All of these terms everywhere in our culture uh, and used in politics, highly politicized on college campuses, social media, everywhere. All of these are to be defined by critical theory, contemporary critical theory. So let's see uh, where does it all come from. Now, when we try to look at what uh, contemporary critical theory is. There are four basic premises. Critical theory works on social binary, oppression through ideology, lived experience, and also the goal of social justice. First of all, contemporary critical theory is based on the idea of the social binary. What this means is that society can be, must be, and correctly is to be divided into two groups, the dominant, the oppressor group, and the subordinate, the oppressed group. And these happen along lines of race, class, gender, sexuality, and a host of other factors. Here we have uh, Sensoy and D'Angelo in their book, Is Everyone Really Equal? For every social group, there's an opposite group. The primary groups that we name here are race, class, gender, sexuality, ability, status, exceptionality, religion, and nationality. Consequently, sexism, racism, classism, and heterosexism are specific forms of oppression.
So have a look at this uh, uh, diagram here. Here is a diagram, figure 5.1, uh, from the book that I've just quoted. Um, and this shows how society is divided. So we have the minoritized target group on, on the left, the, where the, what kind of oppression is happening in the middle, highlighted in yellow, and which is the dominant agent. So obviously people of color, this is about racism, the dominant group is white. So poor working class, middle class, uh, this is classism, and the owning class is the dominant class. We go all the way through transgender, gender queer, this is sexism, cis men, cisgender men are those who who believe that their gender is tied to the biology as opposite of transgender ideology. Gays, lesbians, lesbians bisexuals, two-spirit people. This is religious, uh, sorry, this is heterosexism, and it's the heterosexuals that are doing this. Remember, according to critical theory, this is happening all the time, whether you know it or not. It is everywhere present. It's not, has this taken place, but how has it taken place? And here's something to, to think about. Muslims, Buddhists, Jews, Hindus, and other non-Christian groups, they are the minoritized, oppressed groups. The oppression there is religious oppression uh, and anti-Semitism, and the dominant group which is doing the oppressing is Christians. So if you're a Christian, you are an oppressor. You are oppressing people of other faiths and groups, whether you say anything, whether you do anything that is particularly oppressive, whatever you say, whatever you do, the question isn't, is has uh, oppression taken place? Uh, the question is how has it taken place? Then you've got ableism, nationalism, and colonialism. Now it's important to understand intersexuality. Intersectionality, intersectionality is the idea that our identities are complex and can't be understood along a single axis alone. So we have uh, a black man. He is more disadvantaged than a white man because he's oppressed by being black. A black woman is more oppressed than a black man because she's oppressed because she's a black woman and she's black, all right? So those two. So a black lesbian woman is even more oppressed than, than um, a, a, um, a black woman because she has the oppression of being a woman, of being black and being a lesbian. And so it's the multiplication of grievance through intersectionality and in one sense, it is helpful to understand that people who locate themselves within particular groups of people with particular experiences do have particular issues and, and do suffer prejudice and are sometimes having to cope with much, much more than people who are li living in more favorable uh, um, uh, identity groups. That's, that's true. But the point is, is that there's a political reason for multiplying so many people on this complex web of intersectionality, because in order to bring about the revolution and the change in society, you need to make as many people as possible feel they have a grievance, feel that they are victimized, and to turn them against the, uh, the uh, hegemonic oppressors who are the ones in charge and in power. So here we have society divided into oppressed and oppressor groups. Don't forget, white women voted for Trump and uh, feminism without intersectionality, intersection, intersectionality is white supremacy. Now, the second idea is that oppression operates through hegemonic power. What is hegemonic power? 
Senso in D'Angelo say hegemony, hegemony refers to the control of the ideology of society. The dominant group maintains power by imposing their ideology, ideology on everyone. And what is important to know about this and understand about this is that this operates through discourse. So it's not just that the people in power determine what uh, is is what is the ideology that is to be accepted and what is acceptable, but it is about you being part of the dominant group determine for other people what is true. Knowledge is power and power is knowledge. It's the same thing. And it operates through discourse, operates through language. That's how hegemonic power operates. And so we can see why it is so important to those people who are activists from a critical theory perspective, work perspective, want to control what people say. Now, whether this is a correct understanding of how power operates, that's what the theory says. And then the third um, primary idea is, is that of lived experience. Contemporary critical, critical theory argues that lived experience gives oppressed people special access to truths about their oppression. In other words, it's a, it's a bit like saying, you know, no uterus, no, 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 no opinion. Because if you've been through something and you've experienced something, you're going to know a lot more about it. You'll even know more about cancer in terms of your personal experience, what it feels like, than your oncologist who's never had it. And that's true. And that's, that's important. However, you wouldn't say, listen, I have cancer. You're the oncologist. I don't listen to your truth. Yours just Western male oppressive scientific truth. I just look at my own truth. You will never be cured of cancer uh, by you won't receive the benefits of medical treatment that way. And so here we have a quote from Anderson and Collins in their race, class and gender anthology. The idea that objectivity is best reached only through rational thought is a specifically Western masculine way of thinking, one that we'll challenge throughout the book. So the idea that truth is best reached through rational thought is specifically Western and masculine, especially if it's only rational thought. In other words, there is a tendency here to move against rational ideas, move against scientific ideas, and to depend very much on people's lived experience. And the premise number three is that lived experience gives oppressed groups privileged access to the truth. To put it simply, privileged groups tend to be blinded by their privilege. Now that might well be true, but that does not mean to say we, we jettison uh, ideas of scientific inquiry, experimentation, validation, looking at the data, studying, using our minds to come at truth. We don't just go to people's opinions from their own subjective points of view. It can add value to it and it can add a, a great deal of empathy into society, but that is not how we discover truth. And so finally, contemporary critical theory is fundamentally concerned with social justice. In other words, that's the goal. Uh, what is social justice? That's the elimination of all social uh, all social oppression, whether it's based on gender, race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, 
physical or mental ability or economic class. Now, this sounds amazing. I and mean, it's a wonderful agenda, very good on paper, to bring about some kind of change in society which will bring this about. However, this is a revolutionary goal rather than an evolutionary goal. This must come through crisis, not through process, or if it's process, very rapid process. So the goal is to bring a social revolution by, first of all, tearing down all the old structures of society which are based on hegemonic power and which are based on oppression, which are based on oppression and on domination. And, and, and that operates, don't forget, everywhere, all the time, everywhere present. How are you going to bring that about by destroying all of that? It is a complete overthrow of society, which will lead not only to authoritarianism, but totalitarianism, totalitarianism and even violence. That's what the first Marxist revolution discovered. And this one, though it's not Marxism, follows very much many of the same principles. This utopia will not happen by this kind of activity. It's much better to think about how we could progress together with cooperation, not pitting uh, political groups against one another, identity groups against one another, but to come around in humility, share with one another, begin to look at what we can learn from one another and together form solutions. And so Neil Shenvey says, I hope that I've convinced you that critical theory helps to explain many phenomena. If we understand it, we can understand a lot of what's happening in contemporary society, in academia and in our culture and in our politics. So I hope that that is also added to your understanding and recognition of what woke is, what contemporary critical theory consists of today. Thank you so much again, Colin. And again, welcome to the many of you who have joined us while that uh, training video was going on. We are in the middle of having a look at five teaching training videos that were done by Pastor Colin. Each is 10 minutes or a little bit longer. We are interspersing it with input and real life examples from members of our panel who come from a wide cross section of the marketplace and of society involved and work in completely different areas. Um, I, if I can ask that the following four people get ready, please. Uh, Mami, Lola, Yatunde, and Dr. Rosemary Moore. Um, let's, let's summarize what we heard in that session. And if, if some of you, if you're beginning to struggle with the technical nature of the words behind critical theory and wokeism, that's really as far as we need to go in session three with the technical nature of it. Sessions four and five get a, a touch easier as we start talking about application, critiquing it, and deciding where we go. But let's just do a quick wrap up for what Colin said. And uh, it's according to Dr. Neil Shenvey, four points really quickly on critical theory. One is it's a binary system of the oppressor and the oppressed, and whether we like it or not, that's what they teach exists. Secondly, the dominant group maintains power by imposing their ideology. Thirdly, there is something called lived experience. Now, we're not asking whether we agree or disagree with this just yet. We're coming to that in session number four. This is what the theory states. So there's lived experience where the oppressed have special access to truth about their oppression. And points number four, social justice, but slightly different to perhaps what we think or how we define social justice. Rather than a gradual change that makes sense, they view it more as very rapid and through revolution. Okay. Now, Mamie, let me just say that the four people I've identified from the panel, 
they are a combination of professionals who work either in law or are prof professionals in medicine. So, I mean, tell me a little bit, in your environment, what have you noticed that's been changing in the recent months, years, and what's cropping up that's challenging you as a believer? Okay, Mami. Hi, everyone. I hope you can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Go ahead. Can you yes? hear me? Okay, sorry. Um, so I would say what I have noticed definitely in higher education over the past, gosh, five years, most definitely, um, you know, uh, one weekend I returned um, toilet in all the university buildings that is now labeled as uh, gender neutral. Um, and it was uh, interesting. I mean, when staff returned after that weekend, um, you know, there was a lot of chatter in the kitchen about it. Um, senior management um, uh, reside. Um, actually, a female member of staff, a senior a female member of staff had commented that actually she didn't want um, a Okay, we, we might have lost Mami there. Um, uh, maybe someone- I'm having internet. Okay, go ahead. I don't know how far you heard me, but- We just lost a couple with Mami, keep going. So, so yeah, so, so Yes, so we have gender neutral toilets. And as I said, a, a senior female member of staff, um, you know, disagreed with that and, and didn't want the idea of a, a transgender uh, woman to have access to this toilet. So, you know, the fact that Pastor Colin had uh, used that as a, an academic ex example, it is, it is actually happening. It, it's not academic anymore. Um, and interestingly, I remember when, as a church, we um, we did the training with Larry Crabb about, you know, identity and um, etc. About three or four years time, you know, I why we were doing it, but boy, did I understand it um, in the place of work um, where we it is it's, it's just normal. In an actual fact, if you are not aware of the gender politics or gender issues you are very much behind the times and it's almost unacceptable that you don't understand all these different terminologies so it it, it is a very um it's it's difficult it's difficult to be able to speak and to speak up because it's interesting that uh, again from the video it, it talks about christians being the oppressor but actually sometimes i feel oppressed because if you do speak up or if you do, um, you know, offer an opinion that is different to, to the, the norm, um, you are immediately termed as homophobic or, um, you know, yes. And I, and I have, I have been labeled that and I, I've had to strongly, um, um, you know, say that that's not the case. And actually, you know, Christianity is about, sharing the love of Christ and being salt and light, but it is very difficult to be salt and light in this um, environment. Thank you so much, Mami. And we've had a question come up. By, by the way, for those of you who are in the webinar, if you would like to raise questions, you can do so through the chat or panel members will try to get back to you. 
as soon as we can. And we also have allocated a little bit of time at the very end of the webinar where we can try and answer some of those questions. But a question has come up about the material and the recordings, absolutely. And I will repeat that later on. Uh, much of what we say, some of the um, teaching material, the five training sessions, the slides we're using, all of that will become available um, on our church website, kt.org. And uh, so, yeah, if you've missed anything like somebody, someone have been, has been mentioning to us, we'll, we'll definitely make sure it's available to you. Let's go to Lola next. Lola, what have you noticed uh, in your line of work? Okay. So um, in terms of family law cases, um, especially um, in the uh, custody battle between parents or the, um, the parents and the local authority, Historically, uh, I recall, at least while I was studying law in university, you know, uh, some of the cases we looked at at the time um, included those where the um, parents' lifestyle, e.g. whether the, um, their sexuality, uh, whilst it was not regarded as reading the, the um, parents unfit to look after the child, it was a factor that was taken into account in the report that was prepared for the courts in determining the custody of the child. You know, there are quite a number of um, factors, we call them the welfare checklists that are taken into consideration, um, such as, you know, the child's age, their, their, their preference and, and a few other things. So historically, um, the parents' lifestyle, i.e. whether or not they were um, uh, gay or, um, homosexual was taken into consideration. That is no longer the case. In fact, if um, a lawyer acting for a particular parent should raise that up, that would be um, seen as being homophobic or discriminatory against the other parent who is uh, gay. And then also increasingly, uh, there's a huge number of um, um, gay couples or gay people being approved for um, to foster children or to um, adopt children. And um, in some cases, the panel that decides on um, the adoption will take into consideration the birth parents' opinion. And, um, and when this birth parents cite things like, oh, the adopted sexuality, that is disregarded. You know, what the panel wants to take into consideration is basically, can that person take care of the child. Their sexuality is not taken into consideration at all. It's, it's not a factor, you know, which historically it would have been a factor. Again, in terms of marriage, previously, you know, um, you take instructions from heterosexual, you know, clients uh, when the marriage breaks down. Um, now with civil partnership and, you know, same-sex marriage, um, um, everyone is entitled to the benefits that you know you get when a marriage breaks down. For example, you know you're entitled to your partner's um, share of their pensions, their their assets, and things like that. You know, so um, before when a relationship between um, gay people, same-sex people broke down, they were not entitled to anything. But now with marriage, um, same-sex marriage, they are entitled to claim um, you know a lump sum or benefits or or some kind of maintenance from the other partner. Thank you. And uh, Lola, would you say that uh, the rate of change is expediting? It's more and more change quicker? More and more, more and more. In fact, um, you know, a, a lot of this um, taking into um, the lifestyle into consideration is something that was 
a long time ago and it's no longer taken into consideration today. And if you do that, you're discriminatory or you're homophobic and you could get into trouble basically. So it's changing and lawyers need to be up, up to date with the law. <laughs> you can't refer to a previous law. You need to you know, take continuing uh, uh, professional um, development to, to update yourself on the changing law because it's changing rapidly. Thank you so much. Hey, um, may I just uh, step in there, Ron? Um, I appreciate Lola's contribution. I just want to clarify the perspective she's speaking from. She's speaking as a lawyer who is facing complex legal uh, problems and legal complexities around cases which will come across her desk as a lawyer. It's not a moral judgment on whether gay couples should or shouldn't be able to adopt children. It's about the wishes of people who are putting ch children up for adoption and the agencies that are working in this area um, who have very much a woke agenda. And so just don't want anybody to hear that this is like so anti-gay that we wouldn't believe that it is possible for uh, gay couples to adopt and bring up children healthily. Maybe social sciences will give a judgment on that in a number of years to come. And also the complexity surrounding um, giving the same legal rights to gay couples as to um, uh, uh, heterosexual couples, which is now uh, which is now an imperative in law. She's talking about the complexities that lawyers have to work through in doing their daily job. Uh, it is not uh, saying that, for example, uh, people living in civil partnerships or in homosexual marriages, that their rights should not be recognized in law. I just wanted to make, make that point because it is becoming very, very difficult. And here is the problem. I felt it important to make that clarification because of the potential misunderstanding. And this goes to show how difficult it is even to talk about some of these things in case we are being misunderstood and misrepresented. And just to throw a little bit on what Mama said, um, no example that I gave was a merely academic example. I took examples from academia. Yes, every example is real and actual and it is happening everywhere. And just a little one to, to plead my own cause here, and that is that I do realize many people do not understand why I raise the topics that I do and when I do, later on they understand. I'm a keen observer of human nature and what goes on in society and have a prophetic dimension to this. A year ago, I presented just a basic topic on woke at our um, network, uh, annual network meeting, and I was faced with totally blank faces, but actually raising that was not only highly relevant, it was also prophetic. So we do need to keep in touch with the Holy Spirit and that's the one who should be directing all our thoughts and our progress here. Thank you so much for that uh, clarification, Colin, really helpful. We, we've got time to squeeze one more person in. Uh, how about Dr. Rosemary Moore? And in fact, uh, Rosemary, you not only do you operate as a doctor, and I can see your doctor husband sitting next to you, Dr. John Moore. Um, Rosemary, you're, you're a mom as well. You've noticed some things uh, with the children, but why don't you tell us really briefly your observations? Yeah, thank you for um, giving me this opportunity. So yeah, as a mom, um, first of all, can I just say that there is a hierarchy of equalities. These issues are definitely interlinked. They're very confused. And some people who've left it have described the whole process as a cult. 
Um, so my own personal experience is that actually these things have been embedding within school structures for quite a number of years. Um, my daughter and my son are in the same school I was in when I was in the 1980s. So actually it's become a much more diverse school. And yet these issues have become much more prominent and divisive. So the situation that I would like to dis describe is one where for my daughter, where a friend of hers um, basically had um, essentially ridiculed another, another child who was a Hindu child who described um, worshiping cows. And she said, oh, did you do this in a field? Um, this had caused outrage. The child was asked to apologize and she did apologize, but actually it was felt that this apology wasn't uh, contrite enough. And so essentially, and this is all in the uh, context of George Floyd and it's, it has really ramped up since then. Um, and I'll, I'll just touch on that a very bit because that's not about racism. Um, anyway, so a group of girls basically got together and said that they were going to create a petition to the school to stamp out racism. Um, and essentially anybody who stood by this girl who was a white girl who'd spoken to the Asian boy was a racist themselves. They'd started graffitiing on the backs of toilet doors saying that she's a racist and anybody who supported her is a racist. The, the petition essentially created um, things to do with racism, but two elements were to do with race. The rest of it was to do with sexuality and pronouns and binary um, identities. Uh, another situation I would just didn't include was my son who basically um, went to a predominantly Muslim school in um, near where we live and had brought in a ham sandwich and essentially um, somebody had called him a dirty pig and thrown his, torn up his books. The school unfortunately found it hard to manage that as essentially the, the, the issue was between Christian and Muslim. So I think essentially what these two um, things show and also within the school recently, most recently, there's a meme going around uh, called a Karen. So Karen is a middle aged blonde haired woman who's into other people's businesses and basically doesn't like immigrants, doesn't like this, doesn't like that. And again, it's a very, very clear representation of the fact that this is a very blind ideology where actually the aim is to essentially assert your fallen rights. Okay. You know, your sort of um, the hierarchy, the inverted hierarchy of, um, and so actually you can't see the oppression that you're inflicting on somebody else. In fact, they are, they are deemed to be correctly the subject of abuse. Um, so, so it was really interesting talking to the children and saying, hold on, but isn't this racist? And for actually children actually aren't able to see it at the moment in some ways because it is absolute full on indoctrination in schools and things like Stonewall have done this over about five, six years. It's, it's been very, very clear. And we have actually been probably a little bit foolish in sitting back and not realizing that this is happening. As my work as a doctor, essentially, um, you know, a couple of years ago, we were all told to wear lanyards with uh, rainbow flags on them. If you didn't, it was a bit overt. It was a bit of an unsettling time. Obviously, we're right in the middle of pandemic, so everybody's got lots of work to do. Sometimes when things are a little bit quieted, that's when devil makes um, work for, uh, you know, idle hands. But I do think we're living in two Timothy three times. But um, with regards to work, essentially, it's very, very clear. If you do not conform, then essentially you must be religious. And if you're religious, you need to be shut up. So that's a very, very clear experience I've had. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Rosemary. Appreciate that point of view. Let's let's move on to training teaching video four. As I said at the end of training session three, 
that's really as far as we wanted to go in terms of explaining the technical nature of some of these uh, words. But we're getting into some really interesting uh, videos now, sessions four and five, where we're going to critique woke, and which means we'll hear both the positives and the negatives. So let's go to that training video. Welcome to the fourth session in our webinar, Understanding the Times. In this session, we're going to look at a critique of woke, a Christian and a liberal critique of woke. And for this session, again, I am depending very much on the teaching of Dr. Neil Shenvey from shenveyapologetics.com. You can access his material there and find some of the material that I have borrowed from there and also uh, stuff, other stuff which I'm not using in this presentation. Now, we begin by looking at the strengths of woke. Any, any criticism's got to begin with, well, what's good about it, first of all? And there are many, many things which are positive about some of the critical theories or the woke teaching as such. One of the greatest strengths of critical theory is it recognizes that oppression is evil. Also that it focuses on groups rather than individuals, provides insight on how laws and institutions can promote sin. It looks at hegemonic power, recognizing it does exist and can have an insidious effect on our norms and values. So it is provides in, uh, insight also into how laws and institutions can promote sin. Laws, institutions can promote sin. I believe there are laws and institutions today that promote sin. Also, we re see how uh, it recognizes hegemonic power in as much as this can have an insidious effect on our norms and values. Here we have good old Barbie. And um, this is Hollywood, Madison Avenue, definition of standards of beauty and sexuality and race. And I think it's important that we confront hegemonic power when it operates in these ways. But there are some conflicts between critical theory, liberalism, and Christianity. Now, why I throw in liberalism here is I've got a whole study on how liberalism is affected by critical theory. But what many liberals don't know is many of their values, such as equality, freedom of speech, and justice, and fair-mindedness, these have come into contemporary uh, Western culture historically through so much that the gospel has to present. And the values that liberalism depend on are values that really come from God. And using those values is stealing from God unless you recognize where they come from. Now, the first and most fundamental problem with critical theory is that it functions as a worldview. Now, what is a worldview? A worldview answers some basic questions about life and reality. Who are we? What is our fundamental problem as human beings? What is the solution to the problem? What is our principal moral duty in life? What's our purpose in life? And so a worldview is a meta-narrative through which we view and interpret all other claims. And so here we have a comparison between Christianity 
and critical theory to show that they are competing world views. Christianity teaches that we are created in the image of God. We are the creatures of a holy God, a loving God, a creator God. Teaches that our fundamental problem is sin. We have rebelled against God. It teaches us that the primary solution or the solution to our problem is redemption. Jesus came to bear the sins of the world to rescue us and our primary duty in life, purpose in life, is to love God, to glorify God. Critical theory also functions as a worldview, but it tells a totally different story, yet it's comprehensive, it is overarching story, it's a meta-narrative. Critical theory, though it owes its roots to postmodernism, has departed from postmodernism inasmuch as postmodernism says there is no bigger story. It's all fragmented, but you see, that's not very good if you want to be a political activist. You've got to have a meta-narrative. You've got to have a story. So critical theory recognizes this and has, I would say, invented one. Now, their comprehensive story is different. It doesn't begin with creation. It begins with oppression. That's a huge difference. If you begin with creation, you recognize that you are accountable to God. You're created in the image of God, that you are to called and you're accountable to God. But if you begin with oppression, if that's, if that's where your story begins, you begin with hurt, you begin with violence, you begin with anger, and you don't have a higher category of God's superintending power and creativity. So it begins with oppression. There's no transcendent creator. We don't exist in relationship to God. And we instead define ourselves not as God's creatures, but we define ourselves in the categories of oppressed and oppressors. And we see ourselves in identity groups as race, class, sexuality, gender, identity. Oppression, not sin, is the fundamental problem. So what's the solution? The solution is activism, changing structures, raising awareness. We work to overthrow and dismantle hegemonic power. That's our primary uh, uh, purpose. To, that, that's our solution and our primary moral duty. So, But what is our purpose? Our purpose then is to work for the liberation of all oppressed groups so that we can achieve a state of equity. Does that sound like the gospel of Jesus Christ? Critical theory and Christianity answer some of the most fundamental questions that there are, but they answer them differently. Who are we? God's creatures or members of various groups? What is our problem? Sin or oppression. What's the solution? Jesus or liberation. What's our duty? Loving God or liberating the oppressed. What's our purpose? Glorifying God or working for liberation. Then it comes on to this thorny question of epistemology, not just world uh, view, but epistemology. Epistemology is how we come to knowledge, how we come to understanding. And so when somebody makes a truth claim, we automatically want to, want to ask, is this train claim true? How would we investigate it? But now critical theory doesn't do that. 
somebody makes a truth claim, the first question is not, is this claim true, but what has this person got to gain from making this claim? What social or political agenda is motivating this statement? How does this claim function to preserve that person's power within their group of privilege or position in the whole of society? And so the emphasis is shifted away from truth into from a claim which is looked at in terms of reason and logic and looking at the evidence or coming on to what C.S. Lewis called bulverism. Bulverism, which is just if those C.S. Lewis lovers will know about this. So when it comes to claims of truth, the, the question is not um, followed through and checked out in terms of reason, logic, argument and evidence, but what is the motivation? What is the hidden agenda? Why is that person saying what uh, they are saying? And so when it comes now to any claim, which is a, a truth claim, they'll say, well, is this claim maintain maintaining supremacy? If it's an oppressed group that is saying it, it's maintaining supremacy. Sorry, if it, is, if it is a dominant group, it's maintaining supremacy. If it's an oppressed group, it's internalized oppression. That person is accepting this claim and making such a statement because they've internalized oppression. You cannot win. We understand what this might mean if we are trying to compare critical theory with the Bible or talking to critical theorists or woke people from the Bible. They will say, no, no, no. So we say, listen, listen, look. Do you think the Bible teaches that abortion is wrong? That's because you're trying to control women's bodies. Do you think that the Bible teaches that homosexuality is a sin? That's because you're motivated by homophobia. Do you think the Bible teaches that husbands have the responsibility to lead their family? That's because you're trying to preserve male supremacy. We've heard many of these things before many of these things before. So this is bulverism. And what it says is don't investigate a claim on its own merits. Investigate with truth and evidence and reason and logic. Find out who's saying it. If it's an oppressed person saying it, it's an internalized oppression. If it is a, a dominant from a dominant group saying it, it's because that is their hegemonic power at work. It really is quite unacceptable for Christians. Another aspect of this is the adversarial relationship between individuals. Now, this is another reason why there is a conflict between critical theory and Christianity. First of all, we pointed out that it was a worldview in conflict with the worldview of the Bible. Secondly, it's epistemological claims. In other words, it's claims as to how truth is, is perceived and known, is, is, is based on identity groups. It's not based on objective reason or scientific evidence. Or, or, or argument. No, it is just who says it that counts. And now we come to this third thing, the adversarial relationship between individuals. And this is really, really troubling because what it says is that you have to divide society into the groups of those who are oppressed and those who are the oppressors. Now, if you thought that all human beings shared some fundamental universal identity marker, you would have to look at divisions and oppression in a different kind of way. You see, this severely undermines the dichotomy between oppressor and oppressed if you call into question the foundation of critical theory. 
Well, Christianity offers not just one, but three fundamental universal identity markers which are shared by all human beings, whatever race, class, whatever their sexuality, whatever their gender, whatever their experience. And these are, we have been created in the image of God. Sin, we all have sinned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus died for all. So we find now that the final objection that we might bring is the rejection of hegemonic power. You say, well, surely you want to reject hegemonic power. Surely you don't want to uphold hegemonic power. If you do, that just shows what kind of identity group you belong to. But the truth is, those in critical theory also want to gain hegemonic power, but they don't say that just yet. They just want to tear down other hegemonic powers and let them tear them all down. Let them tear all human structures down. But there is one overriding, sovereign, omnipotent, uncreated God who holds all power. The Bible is nothing, actually, than one colossal hegemonic discourse from start to finish. That's what it says. And they agree with that. They agree that the Bible is hegemonic. That's why it should be rejected. However, when you understand that God is who he is, he has all the power in the universe and he's the only one who's told the true story of, the re of reality in the Bible. This means there's one true story of religion, one true story of morality, one true story of sexuality, one true story of gender and so forth. And that's found in the Bible. Now, I understand that this is totally unacceptable to people who don't believe in the Bible. I understand it's a huge stumbling block for people when they try to believe in the Bible who come from oppressed groups. I understand that. But either God exists or he doesn't. The Bible is the word of God or it isn't. Jesus came to save us or he didn't. He died on the cross to save us or he didn't. Or he, he was raised again from the dead or he isn't raised from the dead. He's coming again or he isn't coming again. That doesn't depend your point of view, whatever race you are in, whatever, whatever background you're from, these things are true whether you believe them or not or whoever says them because God says them out. That is the test of faith. And I'm concerned that Christians today are taking more account of critical theory than they should. There's stuff that we can learn from it. But if we're not careful, it conflicts so much with Christianity and this whole thing. The Bible is one whole giant, colossal, hegemonic, hegemonic discourse from start to finish. That's what critical theory says. So you will not really be able to bring the Bible into this kind of discussion unless you can point out the error that people have rejected, not in a thinking kind of way. Now, perhaps there's one more thing we could say about the Christian objection to cr critical uh, theory, and that is this moral asymmetry between the oppressor and the oppressed. And what that is, is that, look, um, and we've got examples here, which, which are on the, the screen for you, of people who have written the most appalling things, the most outrageous things. But because they are people who are saying the things against those who are perceived to be holding the hegemonic power, that's fine. That's fine. It's okay, because it's righteous and just to do that. Actually, the truth is, is there's no moral asymmetry. Yes? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We understand that. And there are people who are worse down the line of sin than others. And there are people who are more oppressed 
uh, and more guilty in certain sins than in others. But there is, there is no way that the rules that I apply for my life and what I can say and do don't apply to your life because you are in the wrong group. And that's what tends to happen with critical theory. And so the insistence that individuals from different demographic groups should be held to different moral standards purely on the basis of their group identity is deeply unbiblical. Sin is not rooted in power dynamics. It is rooted in the violation of God's commands in thought, word, and deed. And so those are some of the issues that we take with critical theory, but remember there are some good strengths. And when we come to talk about what we do from here, we need to build on the strengths and the, the ground that we have in common with critical theorists, but be very, very clear, we don't follow them in any of this stuff which is contradictory to Holy Scriptures and to the God of the Bible. Thank you so much, uh, Colin. And again, welcome to the very many of you, 316 people on right now, the very many of you who are have joined us while this training teaching video is on. We are going through the process of uh, enjoying five short training teaching videos on the topics of woke and critical theory. And uh, for, for those who have asked the question, yes, all of the material will be available later on. Um, and we'll, we'll give you instructions on how you can do that later on, but uh, pretty sure most of it's gonna be on the church's website, kt.org. If I can ask the following four people from the panel to get ready, please. Uh, David Parfit, Isoken, uh, Wally, Philip, and uh, Yatunde. Again, our panel is representative of a wide array in the marketplace. We have medical professionals, law professionals, parents, um, people who are in business, and they are here to offer perspective, to try and answer some questions if you have questions, but also to share their experiences so far. So let's, let's do a quick recap on what we heard the Colin just say, that uh, in critiquing it, as most good critiques would do, we hear both the positives and the negatives. There are some positive things about woke and critical theory, the understanding and acknowledgement that oppression is evil, that the, an understanding of groups is pretty, pretty useful on understanding some of our historical laws and institutions, and an understanding that power does in fact exist. Earlier on in the presentation, we saw the example of Little Barbie Doll, but one a glaring example I can think of is the Hollywood movies and how characters and lifestyles and shapes and sizes are all um, designed very cleverly and shown on the screen. There are, we need to understand there are some conflicts as children of Christ. Um, Colin listed several, I'll pick up on a couple of them he mentioned. Uh, there's a huge, huge difference between the worldviews offered by critical theory and those of a Christian and God's word. With a Christian, between creation and the fall and restoration, we have redemption. With critical theory between oppression and liberation, we have activism, two completely different things. So let's have a clear understanding of that. Secondly, when someone makes a statement with critical theory, it's not a question of, is it true the way we would typically um, check something out relative to science or medical or other means? The question is really, when you make a statement, where is it coming from? What do you mean? What's your agenda? 
What's your motive? And, and is it all related to maintaining supremacy? And then I picked up, well, there are several other things Colin mentioned. I picked up at the very end. There are not different standards and different moral uh, standards for different groups. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all of us. And we need to understand there's a big, big difference between where critical theory is going and its teaching and how we stand as Christians. So let's, let's hear from some members of the panel. If we would go to David Parfit. Now, David's got an interesting background. Not only is he a dad, and he can share from that perspective, but he's also a school governor. And David, you've communicated to us some of your experiences. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've been seeing? Yeah, sure. Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for having me you know, contribute to this really helpful webinar. So um, I've not always been a school governor. Obviously, you can only serve for two four-year terms. But um, my experience as a school governor began, actually, when I um, a, an advert was put out by the school to come along to a gender equality um, session being put on by one of the teachers. And there were just a couple of parents turned up. So I went with one of my children. We listened and a worksheet was given out. And I've got it here. I hung on to it. It was two years ago. And it's um, raising children without gender stereotypes. So it's actually distributed by quite a what we a, a strong feminist organisation, and it's dealing with a number of issues. You know, they won't, they don't want men to treat their girls like little little girls in, der in you know derogatory terms. So there's a lot of good uh, desire. There could be a lot of good desire behind this kind of leaflet you know it was trying to avoid girls ending up in situations where they could be abused and you know allowing this idea that men can abuse girls and you know run you know do all the kind of things that we know we know are bad so it comes out of a place of trying to deal with inequality trying to deal with oppression um however we in that mix there was a very aggressive stance against stereotypes. So I wrote to the school and I said, you can't get rid of stereotypes because as soon as you do that, you are, you are hurting people who say conform to those stereotypes. They may, may be a girl who likes putting pink hairbands in her head. You, you can't attack her for the sake of wanting to get rid of the oppression. And the school were really good. They, they, I went through their complaints procedure and it ended with me being invited to be a school governor by the chair of government. So I've been a governor now for two and a half years. And in that, I'm now looking and examining things like the RS, the um, relationships and sexual education policy as a Christian. So I'm able to look at those policies and I'm able to give a good, strong, um, obviously informed by my Christian understanding, opinion into those situations. And I see that a lot of the um, woke agenda does come out of a place of hurt and one of our children, she's 18, she's in a sixth form school. And she said, dad, you have to understand that this woke agenda does protect a lot of people who are hurting. You know, there are people, and we have a mean society, we have a society which is vindictive and very abusive, very hurtful, and it can be spiteful. You must understand that teenagers especially can be extremely spiteful and bully each other, to, even to the point of suicide. We, we know one, one boy, He's tried to commit suicide New Year because he is unsure of his identity. And that's led to severe bullying, even by his family members. And as Christians, our responsibility is to restore and renew in our hearts that sense of love. You know, we've, we've got a great opportunity here. 
which is to present the unconditional love of Christ. Now, we were talking about it around the breakfast table last weekend, and we, we began with the children, we began to understand, you know, the woke agenda is like a sticking plaster that you just want to put on top of a wound, and it is not going to heal anyone. It's not going to do what Jesus came to do, which is to heal the brokenhearted. So as Christians, we have a great opportunity to step in with a positive solution, the true solution, which is the unconditional love of God and the, the forgiveness of all sin. You know, we're not singling out people for specific sins, but we're saying that God's grace is here for you and he can heal you. So, you know, I see a problem, but we also see a great solution and a great opportunity. And some of the reasons for the woke, um, the woke agenda um, yeah, so hopefully that's helpful. Thank you so much, uh, David. Now let, let's go to, to Wally or Philip. Um, Wally, you, are, you operate in business. Uh, you've worked with several large, large organizations. You were communicating to us that uh, you've also observed some changes in these large corporations. Um, and you felt strongly as a Christian about something and, and even wrote to them. Let's, so tell us a little bit about what you're noticing that's changed and what's your response as a Christian? Uh, thank, thank you, Ron. Thanks, Pastor Colin. Uh, good afternoon, Church. Mm. I would just like to uh, touch on some of what uh, Delphine and I have uh, observed, and, um, and in particular, as Ron said, I will touch very briefly on some of my experiences at work relating to diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Yes, as already mentioned, uh, diversity and inclusion, they're they great principles on them on, in themselves, but in some cases, I think they may have been hijacked. For me, over the last 20 years, I've had the opportunity to work in quite a few large multinational firms, as uh, Ron pointed out, either directly or as a consultant. And I've noticed a sort of similar pattern, most so lately when it comes to inclusion. While some aspects of this inclusion are un unquestionably laudable, uh, there seems to be a tendency to bring what I would call unlike times together under the same umbrella in such a way that does not in such a way that if anyone doesn't or can't embrace or champion everything that is being shared as is, especially based on scripture, you'll be seen in a different light and usually neg negative. For me, I attended uh, training sessions uh, and seminars at different workplaces in the past and some aspects of what was being presented under the banner of inclusion didn't sound right to me. It didn't go around down well with me for some reason. So I decided to start paying attention and start researching what led behind what was being shared. I've always, um, I've, I've always asked myself that if inclusion, as we constantly told that work, means bringing your whole self to the workplace in order to be more productive, and without question, my faith is an integral part of me, how come then does there seem to be a potent undercurrent in the workplace that tends to sweep my own faith on, on, under, under the carpet and in order to make way for inclusion for others. It, it, it seems to me on so many occasions, and some people may have, may have experienced that as well, that the Christian voice has to be silent or be silenced. And I find this unacceptable. And, and what I've seen in the workplaces, it doesn't start, stand in isolation. It's a microcosm of the entire society. So it reflects what is going on. We saw in 2017, for example, when Tim Farron the, the, was repeatedly hounded over his faith following his initial statement that homosexuality is a sin. Then he had to retract the same statement under, under, under pressure. And at the time, he did say that remaining faithful to Christ was incompatible with leaving, leading his party, the liberal Democrats. 
And in an interview I saw on Premier, he, he, he eventually expressed, uh, he, he regretted saying it was not a sin. He, he, he came back and tried to say he, he regretted saying that homosexuality was not a sin. But obviously the damage was, the damage was already done. And recently in, 20, in 2020, we noticed J Janet Debbie, the MP for Lucian East and Labour Shadow Minister for Faith, Women and Equality resigned following a comment. And if I can just read that, Verbati, that there needs to be something in place that will respect people's conscience and views on faith if they refuse to certify same-sex union. And I, I thought there was nothing unreasonable about what she said. And, and I thought oh, that was quite nice that somebody in the public place pointed that out. But I was surprised how quickly she resigned, retracted her comment because she said on her own account that her comment gave a view, it implied uh, a call for conscience clause to be inserted into the contract of marriage registrars. For me, I came to, I, 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 I in, in a few cases, I came to a realization that I needed godly wisdom, given increasing legal restrictions in place to limit one's expression of faith in public or leaving out one's faith at work. For example, I, I work with people who are, are trans, transsexual colleagues of mine, and I had to learn how to relate to them in line with my conscience without coming across as judgmental or unloving. And likewise, Delphin here is a solicitor and um, worked as a solicitor, as a, as a lecturer, worked in different aspects of law, including family law, where things you have to be quite careful how you handle things. And Delphin, she had to prayerfully consider her cases and actions and had to reach out to her employers to know what kind of cases she would take on and what she would not take on on the grounds of her faith. She had to lead that out very clearly and people would, would hesitate to bring cases to her and that, that was not in line with her beliefs. And now that she runs her own firm, we've, not, we've never stopped praying for godly wisdom and direction in all the cases she handles. Finally, I'll just put quickly what the last one I attended, the seminar I attended early this year in January before lockdown. I, I, I reflected on it for a while and I was bothered for days. So I put a question together that the next time we had this, I would, I, I, at work, I would, I would ask this question. Obviously, I didn't get the chance to ask, but I saw my question a few days ago, and I'll just read that. This is what, what I put down. The firm has done a lot of commendable work to promote aspects of inclusion. In the same light, what is the firm doing to promote freedom of conscience, especially where faith and inclusion are not necessarily at one? What is the firm doing to promote or protect the interests of professionals who find themselves at risk of being labeled non-inclusive simply by practicing their Christian faith. Not that I was expecting a response, a Christian response from, from the body, but I felt it was important to put this viewpoint because the Christian faith to me was, was constantly being marginalized. And those who were in charge seemed that even though they may not have meant bad, they were, their views, they had a different worldview, world which I'm not, I'm not beginning to understand, which is di di diametrically opposed to scripture. And um, so be quite, I'm quite grateful about what Pastor Colin is sharing, and we just continue to pray for a better understanding of the times we live in. So thank that, you, Wally. What give us wisdom and boldness to respond appropriately. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. It, 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 I appreciate what you're saying, because it seems a number of questions are coming in about what do we do next? What do we next? It sounds like people are really understanding what we're teaching and they're concerned about how do we make this work next. So I really appreciate that. If I can hear very, very briefly from, um, from Yatunde, you work in the medical environment. 
So um, I work in a hospital setting and I'm going to give an example of how communication has changed or has been more controlled in recent years. So to give some background, whenever a patient is seen, a letter is usually sent to the GP and to the patient to explain treatment and diagnosis. And for speed, a standard template is often used, but only specific details of the letter are changed to tailor it for each patient and their condition. So in, in the last few years, there's been a change in the templates and the newer templates have removed all titles such as Mr. or Mrs. And they've removed the pronouns he, she, him, her, and they've all been re replaced by there. So for example, several years ago, a template or a letter would have read, Mr. X attended the hospital, his test results were normal. We will review him again in six months. The letters now read, X attended the hospital, their test results were normal. We will review them again in six months. And this is now sent to all patients and unless you manually change it. Thank you, Yatunde. So everyone's become a there. Correct, yes. Okay, um, let's hear from Isakin really briefly, and then we'll go on to the next video right after. Okay, um, so thank you so much for this opportunity. It's an honor to be here with everybody. Um, I think my own experience was, I'll start with my family background. So coming from a background where I have a parent that's worked in government and in politics, I remember growing up and even being an adult where people felt like, oh, if your parent worked, you know, in the government, worked with presidential or in politics, then they were probably a crook. So there were things that I remember being deprived of because people felt, no, she's probably had a very glamorous life. So you don't deserve to be given certain benefits that you needed to have. And I remember growing up with that and always having to fight for my rights. And I remember having to be very assertive and remembering not having to be big when those things came towards me. And I remember many times that I would grow up and see things being written down in the newspapers or the internet. And if I were not the child of the person, I would easily believe that. And I think one of the things that that taught me was do not be quick to criticize, don't be quick to judge. And now moving that into the professional place, into the workplace, having come from a legal background, um, I'm very passionate about procedures and laws being followed. And I remember going to my place of work even now where people would want to reach company procedures and not follow the standard operating procedures. And I remember always being that person to say, oh no, if you have a problem with the leadership, then why don't you submit an official letter and take it to them so that things are done the proper way because the Bible tells us to submit to authority. And even trying to instill that in the workplace, there's always that thing of, okay, well, she's different because you're trying to be a Christian. And I think over the years with the experience I've had, what that has done to me, instead of becoming bitter, I said, okay, I have to find a way to still show that moral and ethical values are things that cannot be removed from the workplace. Because I think what the aim is, is always to silence you if you're a Christian, if you're standing for righteousness and justice. But I think that we must not be intimidated by that, but look for a way to, um, to, to um, express what we believe in the most wisest way possible. Because I think everybody really wants to be heard and wants to be understood. So whilst we're going and um, we're coming against that, we mustn't let ourselves be silenced, but we still have to um, be the light of the world and the salt of the earth and let people know that we stand for something. Because I think if you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. And like there's a quote that says, people don't care um, don't care what you know until they know that you care. So one of my pain points of feeling, um, you know, oppressed and stigmatized because of my background or because of my beliefs was to say, I want to turn this into a PowerPoint. 
become, become bitter and not better and say, how can I empathize with people who are in my position and how can I have compassion for them and help them to be people that follow the law without them feeling like I'm discriminating them, but showing them why it's, for, it's important to honor leadership, to follow systems and procedures so that you can have good governance. So that's my example. Fantastic. Thank you so much. You know, when we come to the question and answer, a number of people have been asking what's next. Some of that will come in very, very important. So I appreciate you inputting there. Just a reminder, uh, we are doing, we're gonna go ahead shortly into training, teaching video five of five. We've given you a little bit of background into critical theory and uh, woke. Uh, Colin's broken down some difficult words and explained them. We have actually given you examples of where we see it at work. Uh, we've critiqued it, looking at the negatives and the positives. And now we're gonna talk really briefly in session five about what's coming up next. So let's uh, go to training video five. Welcome to the final session in today's webinar, Understanding the Times. And in this session, we're going to look at where do we go from here? What must we do? Uh, Dr. Neil Shenvey uh, on his website, Shenvey Apologetics, provides quite a bit of information which I'm drawing on today. And I'm going to just touch on this quite briefly because I hope that we can have further discussion in our webinar in the discussion times and in the question and answers, see what we can do together. So I'm just going to give a few pointers. Well, I think, first of all, that churches need to unequivocally and explicitly reject critical theory as a worldview. But we also need to, to be sensitive to the concerns that lead so many people to embrace it. Now, there's some examples from critical theory which have kind of become so accepted that they are actually quite common sense for large segments of society, even for some Christians. For example, the claim that lived experience can give us valuable insights. Yes, it can. But these lived experiences must still be subjected to the scrutiny of scripture and evidence. Also, we need to liberate our theology from privileged groups. Yeah, that's positive. That's positive. We should constantly re-examine our ideology to recognize where I, I, whether our identity is, has biased our interpretation. Yeah. Negative, though, the truth of a, or falsehood of a claim does not depend on the identity of the person making it. I made that point in the last session. Claim number three, we should dismantle all structures which perpetuate privilege. There's a positive point in this. Power can be abused and misused, but power in and of itself is not inherently evil. And power unbalances are not necessarily unjust in society. We have to be very careful before we assume that's the case. Claim number four, we should promote diversity within the church. Yes. Some forms of diversity are elements of God's good creation, but other elements are of diversity are the result of sin, and they must be rejected. Not the people, but they must be rejected. We, we cannot simply accept all diversity, even diversity which is based on sinful practices and sinful ideas. And so we can acknowledge the valuable elements of critical theory, but we also need to uh, uh, reject the ultimate goals and the and sometimes the pragmatic practical strategies 
of the woke agenda in political activism. We work for the kingdom of God. We promote its agenda. We embrace the ways and methods that come from the character, the mission, and the spirit of Christ, not the angry, secular uh, understanding which is based on a premise that God, we're not created in the image of God, and we don't need to consider that. The question is, we need to ask, what can we do as a church to confront issues of race, class, gender, power, and justice, where, it, where there is equality? We've got to fight racism and all forms of injustice. And uh, we, we want to embrace people, not distance people. We need to acknowledge and fight racism. Here is a picture of a lady by the name of Ruby Bridges. I don't know if you know who she is. On the left, there's a six-year-old Ruby who received death threats and had to have U.S. Marshals escort her to her to and from her home when she was the first person to integrate into all-white elementary school in New Orleans. On the right, here is Ruby today, age 65. Hi, Ruby. And so people like that, this is, this is not a long, long time ago. This is living history. We need to know and understand and accept that racism existed, it exists today, and be aware of it, and to be understanding and compassionate for, and see what we can do to change things. I think, however, it's not just an issue of racism. It's an issue of violence against all minorities. We should oppose it. We should oppose violence against Muslims. We should oppose violence against LGBT people. I don't know if you remember the London bus attack that took place in June 2019. Here we have a lesbian couple that were beaten and subject to homophobic attack, left covered in blood uh, for refusing to kiss. It was not they were refusing to kiss, it was they were being victimised because they were lesbians. And so we have to stand against this. And we should be at the forefront of social justice, speaking up for people who are treated this way, whatever their race, religion, sexuality. We are, God's love commands it. We should extend to these people. What about Wilfred Dubrin, beaten up while walking with his boyfriend in the 19th arrondissement of Paris, April the 7th, 2013. These were homophobic attacks. And, and we cannot look at a picture like this and say, it's okay. It's not okay. If we stood in the gap for some of these identity groups who have been not just persecuted, but oppressed and discriminated against, if we speak up for them and had spoken up for them more, we would not be in this divisive situation today. I'm not being naive. I know there are massive ideological differences but human compassion, surely Christianity should be at the forefront of that. Also, it's important to be well informed. Um, uh, Dr. Shenvi says, read broadly, and he's got a photo of a number of people of color saying, these are the people you should read. And interesting thing is, they may be all people of color, but they don't all have the same views. Just because you are black, it doesn't mean to say that you agree with critical theory. And just because you are white, it doesn't mean to say that you disagree with it. Not at all. And so read widely, 
But importantly, this is the most important thing as we finish, most important thing is to uphold the primacy of the gospel, both for Christians and non-Christians. You need to understand that social justice, as important as it is, is not the gospel. God commands us to take care of the poor, but the gospel is not social justice. We don't have a social gospel. We have a gospel about the saving power of Jesus and we preach the gospel. It's the gospel of salvation. Now, of course, the outworking of that gospel as we be our disciples of Jesus, we now then reach out and engage and act as salt and light. But it is gospel first and the fruits of the gospel follow. The fruits are not the gospel. By very definition, it's the fruit of the gospel. And so what can happen today and is beginning to happen in evangelical circles, the gospel of salvation, forgiveness of sin, is being pushed on one side to the gospel for in, for, in favor of the gospel, the social gospel. And for non-Christians, we need to let them know that our gospel is about being right with God and, and preaching those values of being created in these truths, being created in the image of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and we need Christ's redemption. All of these things, we're in the same boat. Whatever race or generation or sexuality group we belong to, we're in the same boat and we need Jesus to help us to walk uh, with God. And then finally, I think it's important to act compassionately and to make a difference, make a real difference. And we're going to be hearing stories of people who will contribute from our webinar as to how they've gone about that, what they've experienced and the differences that we can make. So we're going to move into discussion, question and answers, and we can look at this in more detail. Where do we go from here? Understanding the times, what we should do to serve God in our generation. Thank you so much again, Colin. And that was Thank you, Ron. I, just, I would just like to take this opportunity to answer some questions quickly that have come in. Um, and uh, uh, according to our schedule, we had scheduled to finish by, you know, one o'clock. And we are doing quite well for time because you've really been a really good host on this. So um, uh, don't take the time that I uh, use now off the contributions that are to follow. We have, we have time. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for all the people that have written in questions and uh, not only um, during the webinar, but before and some very valuable points. Now, my um, motivation here is to just to step in, answer a few questions, short questions, and also to set some direction for the discussion that is to follow. So I can cover quite a bit of ground um, before, before, before we do that. Um, just one or two things is that um, what has struck me is that so many people who have contributed are giving us shining examples of Christian activism at work. You are really doing a great job. Uh, uh, the right kind of act activism, as David and others were sharing, very, very encouraging, because at the end of the day, we don't want to lead by uh, the example of power, we want to leave by the power of example. I don't think I'll be the first pastor to quote something from Joe Biden's inaugural speech. I may interpret it slightly differently, but I think that's very, very good. Um, one or two questions on mental health. 
And this is what's very interesting. Um, observations are that mental health is being negatively affected by woke. And um, I, I think it is. Let's just think of one thing. I'm sure we've all heard of CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And cognitive behavioral therapy is to help people who are going through anxiety and depression and other manifestations of men mental health issues by uh, taking charge of the thoughts and the statements that they are saying to themselves over and over again. For example, CBT will teach you do not catastrophize. You know, so, okay, I, I go out, the, the dustbin men and women didn't come, uh, the cats been sick on the floor and uh, a large bill comes in and you say this is the end of the world this is catastrophic no it's not it's three very difficult situations um, and so you take away the catastrophizing element now woke teaches you the opposite woke teaches you to suspect everybody and in every situation understand that racism homophobia sexism is is exist it exists it's happening it's happening all the time everywhere and so you become highly suspicious of people question their motives and question yourself and this is the very opposite of cbt it's reverse cbt and i don't think that's very healthy uh, mentally one of the things that uh, has come up is that yeah we also promote an agenda ours is the kingdom agenda However, the difference is we are prepared to submit our truth claims to public scrutiny. All our truth claims can be examined um, and defended by evidence. So in other words, yeah, unashamedly, we have an agenda as Christians to transform society in line with kingdom principles. We have a hope. We are working towards and moving towards the, the manifestation of, I don't even if it, know if it's right to call it utopia because uh, that's a slightly different word but to a glorious future where there will be no sin no racism no pain no suffering no disadvantage and that's the manifestation of the kingdom of god um what is also important to understand is that uh, when we uh, speak up and take uh, and intervene that we don't do this from a reactive point, an aggressive point, simply by objecting, objecting, objecting. Yes, we should uh, object, but however, we should push for discussion. The primary focus should be on my point of view. This is what Philip was saying when he looked at what was behind some of the diversity and inclusion training that he was being uh, told to go through uh, from a business perspective. Just sort of say, right, well, why is it why is it that our voice and place at the table is not allowed? We know why it is, because the woke agenda considers Christians and Christianity to be one of the biggest defenders of their own hegemonic power. So we have to question this. We don't just object, but we discuss and we share. And also we uh, point out that if you want an inclusive, a truly inclusive society, then nobody should be excluded, and certainly not uh, Christians. Um, another thing I want to uh, mention is that in this whole word of terminology, somebody commented on the chat, 
we shouldn't use the term social justice. And I know exactly why that person said that, because social justice as a term, diversity, equity and inclusion, they're beautiful terms if we interpret them the way we might do that as Christians or as people that have the best, the best of uh, liberal society. Diversity means taking a whole range of people, not just going for one group. Equity for us means being fair and just. Inclusion means including people rather than excluding people. However, each of those terms have very specific and technical meanings in critical theory. And so where if we're naive, we can rush out and march on a side by side with people who are saying they're for social justice. Actually, they're not. They're not for social justice as we would understand it. What they're looking for is for a revolution that will totally tear down the whole of society in order to impose their vision of society, impose it without discussion, without debate, with coercion, totalitarian methods, silencing, cancelling. So we've got to be very careful how we use these terms. And that brings me back, which will help uh, you, Ron, lead into the discussion of where do we go from here. Right at the very beginning, Andrew, who leads our kids and uh, children's ministry, uh, pointed out that many young black people today were uh, so affected and impacted by George Floyd's death, as we all were, absolutely outrageous and terrible event. Now, this is the first mistake that was made at that time. The church isn't doing anything. I feel impacted by this. Therefore, I've got to go out and march with those people who might be motivated by uh, non-Christian motivations, by anger, by hate. And I'm not saying marchers, all the marchers were like that. But I would just like to stop right there and say, examine that uh, uh, assumption. The church isn't doing anything. Oh, the church is doing a lot, a whole lot. If we believe the real answer is not just activism, but Christian activism based on the revelation of God and the belief in redemption and the kingdom of God, we uh, day by day, week by week are doing an amazing amount of things. And the, this uh, um, panelist room today, together with the, the Giants Ministry and uh, regular members of Kensington Temple London City Church, we are working every single day. And so we also have a powerful example. I can't think of a more powerful example of anti-racism than Kensington Temple Church right now. There are others as well where we have a, uh, a hundred and whatever different nationalities, where we have a truly racially inclusive and a unified community, where we've learned that our identity is in Christ and we accept one another, uh, whatever the background. I do accept that we have to look at new ways of being more proactive and more active and thinking of a category of activism, which is distinctively Christian but it must be redemption first activism, not activism that is grievance first and separate this activism from critical theory. Uh, just one more thing before I, I hand on, think about it. If you uh, 
go close to woke, one of the most dangerous places to be is close to woke, as that yoga uh, uh, um, organization found in the United States of America. What you have to do, if you stand with woke, you will have to silence your Christian view. Because as far as woke is concerned in critical theory, you as a Christian are part of the hegemonic power, the principal reason why society is in a mess. That's why this is so dangerous for Christians who will look at the good parts of woke and critical theory, look at the crying needs for social justice that will cause us to take political action, social action, uh, educational action, to really engage in the public square. Yes, we must do this, but we cannot do it uh, without first separating our activism from the activism that is spurred on by critical theory. And I think that many woke critical theorists actually have exploited the pain and suffering of people, whether they are gay or black, belong to an ethnic minority or any other identity group, exploited that pain and tried to multiply that pain where we speak of forgiveness and healing, reconciliation, that kind of, of activism must come above the parapet. We must speak out without fear of being canceled and we must protest and we must lobby government and we must look at ways of changing laws and speaking up for Christian perspective, which is truly inclusive and also not being afraid to march. I've marched and I've stood next to people who are also equally passionate about the things that we need to do and to protest. So, all right, I hope that will clear a lot of questions out of the way and clear it up for us to take this further into what we must do practically. So back to you, Ron, thank you. Thank you, thank you so much, Colin. Um, I can see that uh, a church board member and lawyer Solomon Osagi is on and Deji who is um, fairly senior in business. So I'll be coming to you shortly, gentlemen, just in, in terms of unpacking what Colin has just said. If we were to advise, if we were to help the church on practically what's next, let's offer a point of view. But before we get there, um, Baba is online as well and Baba is senior in marketing. And there's a question that's come up, which, which is quite relevant because in several of the examples that Colin used throughout the five training videos, uh, a lot of the negativities and pressures that came from work activists were, were actually online. And the question is, is around the use of social media. Should, as Christians, should we jump out of it or can we use it to our advantage in this particular strategy? Um, pros and cons, no, we, for example, the example Colin gave of the, the the gym, the yoga club that was shut down, that was done primarily through Twitter and Instagram. Okay, and so the person is asking as Christians, should we run and hide, just say social media is not for us, Baba, or are there opportunities here? Um, good afternoon. Um, yeah, I think that um, in line with generally all that's been said, I think that um, what's needed is probably <clears throat> for us to engage. So I think be it social media, or the offline community. I think generally we, we have to engage. And my observation generally is that there's a lot of um, difficulty in terms of people voicing their opinion or taking a stance because the area that we're discussing is quite complex. And as a result, what tends to happen is that 
a lot of people shy away from engaging. And that means that obviously those people who do engage ends up shaping the agenda and the direction of things. So in terms of social media, I think generally we have to engage. Of course, we need to engage with wisdom. I think that there's always the trap around the fact that it's very easy in this space to fall into the difficulties of being seen as um, being either oppressive or kind or lacking compassion. And I think that just generally, however we engage, what, one important point is that to always bear in mind that on both sides of the argument, if you like, there's pain and, and therefore we just need to bear that in mind as we, as we share our perspective. But definitely, I think it's one that we need to learn to engage. We need to engage. And it's, it's the only way by being in the debate that we can help in terms of shaping the direction of it. So yes, yes, but with wisdom and discernment. Definitely. Thank you so much. Let's, let's hear from Solomon followed by Deji. Solomon, uh, Colin was encouraging us in several areas there. What, as a church, as a body, followers of Christ, what do you see as next steps here? Well, um, thank you very much. Um, thank you very much, Ron, and everybody else. I think uh, Colin's last point is a very, very powerful one because um, we have to be very careful um, that uh, societal philosophies and ideologies that they don't um, they don't influence the way that we that we um, that we see that we receive that we interpret uh, scripture. Uh, we have to be very careful. Um, we have experience of, as Christians of, um, of, of, of these sorts of influences um, in, in whether you're looking at Leviticus or Exodus where the Israelites were told about how to treat and receive uh, foreigners. Uh, we know that we have got these experiences, um, but we've got to be careful that in the end, this is about the gospel. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm careful and worried about that sometimes because, you know, if societal default, as D'Angelo was explaining, uh, Colin was putting it there, is that um, there is an oppressive, uh, oppressive force in society. And we know that these, um, these ideologies, these oppressive ideologies, they spread through these meta-narratives. Um, if we ignore them, if we ignore these narratives and, and say that all we'll do is, is uh, recede into the church, and, and, and pray and do nothing else. Um, I, I'm doubtful that that will work because even postmodernism itself, it, it, it struggles, it struggles with meta-narratives and how to deconstruct them. So even, even if, 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 if the struggle is there, then it's a struggle that we can't ignore as a church. Um, the challenge, I think one of the challenges with uh, diversity and inclusion, if we simply focus on that, rather than going back to the gospel. The problem with diversity and inclusion is that whilst um, it gives minorities uh, like me a voice, diversity and inclusion as a social construct, it, it's also a platform for the ideologies that, that are anti-Christian to flourish. So, uh, you know, <laughs> if, you, if you simply go from the point of view of this is a, a diversity and inclusion thing, then of course you're giving a platform to the very philosophies that are that, that are anti-Christian, um, and Christians we know that we have these experiences. As I say, you know, in the days of Daniel, in, da in Daniel six, when when da King Darius issued the decree, the Christians they were faced with the same conundrum, and they, and they were able to respond. So we have an approach 
but I think has to be about, about the gospel. It's a, it's a difficult argument uh, to, to make, but we have a history of this in Christendom and we've come through it before. But I, as Colin says, for me, I think this is not just about a, a DNI thing. It's not a, a social crusade as, as some people want to present it. I think um, it's got to be uh, the gospel of Christ, which we present in the way that the Bible itself gives us a background, a history to approach these things, uh, because they're real, they're real, they're real challenges, um, but they're not one that, that Christianity has not seen before. And I think we will be successful in the end because the gospel is true in the end, isn't it? Thank you. So Solomon, uh, we have over 300 people uh, listening in right now watching. They're thinking, wow, this is great stuff. I feel really educated. I understand the topic much better. I understand my calling. What, what would you recommend as practical next steps? Well, for me, I think everybody should get involved. One of the challenges that we have is the Christians, um, and I'm not trying to be critical and making it up, but I think it's, it's that my own observation uh, from being in the church is that Christians are very good at making, um, they're very, you know, very vocal and very demonstrative of our faith. Uh, many of us, but I think by and large, what we'd be encouraging is if everyone puts their hands to the plow and gets involved. For example, in the work of the giants, too many, um, there's a lot of work to be done and we're going to be successful if, you know, if we through all 300 people who are participating in, in this webinar and, and more, you know, if everyone got actively involved in, in, this, in, in this activity that Colin is, is driving and has been pushing for many years now, to be, to be honest with you, we're going to have a, a bigger impact because what we need is a joined up approach to how to tackle these issues so that we're all speaking uh, from the same point of view. And, and I think that if, all Christ if we start in the church community, our church community, if it spreads across, uh, then we have a more unified approach because it's interesting that people think that we are one of the uh, Christianities and it's one of the uh, uh, oppressors. Uh, well, you know, if, going by the numbers, you might think that that might be the case, but actually, because there is not enough of a joint approach in getting involved, I think uh, it, it, it makes it difficult. So my, my challenge would be, please, let's not just do this uh, as a wonderful participative event on a Saturday, let's all get involved. Let's sign up to, 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 to the Giants and see how we can contribute to, to, to the agenda and pushing it forward. In fact, there's an interesting question on the chat about, uh, we can do social activism, but how do you convert that to our call to salvation and to share the message of Jesus Christ to others? And maybe we can come back to that in a second, but Deji, you operate senior in business. Uh, what what do you see as next steps here? Practical next steps? Um, yeah, th um, thanks, Rana, um, and um, good afternoon, um, Kitty Church. In terms of um, beginning, I think the first thing um, that you know the message I think that we need to share with you know the people who have an awoke agenda. It is really just to, to engage with them, but engage with them from a point of how Christ sees us, you know, and I think Pastor Colin has said it um, in terms of the different groups that people are putting us into, either you're either an oppressor or an oppressed. I just think that narrative um, isn't in line with the gospel, you know, the, the gospel you know, says that we should not be seen as victims. So even in racism, in sexism, 
in all of these different um, areas of injustices, um, to be to me to be seen as a victim is profoundly wrong. And you know, I you know, even as a black person, you know, yes, there is racism in business. Yes, there is racism in whatever. But you know, I, I, I've I've always refused to see myself as a as a victim not just because I was born in Christ and Christ has said, you know, sort of like, um, I've got power, I've got authority, I've got a strong belief in, in God and that, uh, and that reflects itself. But I just think even if you don't have any belief to believe that you'll be able to conquer something from a place of um, the wrong mental mindset is, it, it, it is kind of like a, I'm quite wrong. So I would challenge, you know, sort of like uh, the people that have that agenda that even for their own selves, there needs to be a renewing of their mind in terms of how they see themselves. But in terms of the church and in terms of us, um, and I, I think just alluding to um, what uh, Dr. Solomon has already said is we need to show them that there is a better way Yes, there is racism. So, you know, you know, going back to Andrew's um, initial comments about the the black boys and how they feel. Yes, they 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 may feel victimized, and yes, they're angry and they've got a whatever. But we should be able to engage with them to say, they, there is another solution to actually move you from where you are to you know where God is actually calling um, you to be and and Christ has the answer, um, not in terms of necessarily um, focusing on their individual um, circumstance, but as, as, as a group that, you know, in order to move them forward, how, how we can do that. And where we've actually done wrong, um, I think, you know, um, as a church um, and as a hemorrhageous power, as they say, you know, if we have done wrong, we should apologize and I don't think we are ever um, shy in um, apologizing for where we've done wrong and where we've made, made mistakes to, to acknowledge that. But we can't be um, vilified every single day for a mistake or a, whatever that we have already repented for. Again, that goes against the goes against the gospel, goes against um, salvation. So when we're engaging with, with these groups, you know, you know, if you know, if we have maybe used our power authority, we haven't done something the way, you know, maybe it's accepted that is right. We apologize, but we can't be um, held to our past mistakes, just like the people that are criticizing. If you were to examine their lives, I'm sure you would find mistakes that they have done and you know, they wouldn't want that to be put out on social media and their whole life pillified for every single mistake that they have. So that, that same justice that they would want to themselves, you know, that, you know, I believe they should be affording to others. But I think the main point is that we just need to um, engage with them. I think it's, um, it's in um, 2 Timothy chapter 4 that it says, you know, the key thing is that we preach the word you know, but we be ready in season and out of season to convince, to rebuke, to exalt with long suffering and teaching. So um, what we're doing today, I think is a real good beginning as part of that journey that we get the education, we get the understanding, we do 
more research so we can um, start that um, engagement um, a, a process. So I don't think we should shy away from it, just like David did with um, um, Goliath. I think we should run to it with, uh, with excitement and say it's an opportunity. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And I, I saw Colin's note there, but uh, we, we need a healing of hurts. It's, you know, he said he, during his, uh, his training sessions, he talked about the gospel at the very top, Christianity at the top, or the rest of our identity is under that. And uh, whatever it takes to mend these hurts, uh, we need to explore a little bit and not, not ignore it, just simply because we're children of Christ. Now, Elizabeth, um, I've, I've noticed Elizabeth is online. If you would unmute, because Elizabeth, you come at it from a slightly different perspective. You have been actually in workplaces where you have seen opportunities for us to do some things as Christians. Do you want to give us a really, really brief update there? Yes. Hello, everybody. Thank you for this opportunity to be here. So sorry. Oops. There we go. Yes. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. I worked for a local authority for um, 16 years. Uh, while I was there, when I joined the local authority, I knew, I knew that I had a sense of calling, you know, and I think we all do on this platform and everyone as a Christian, wherever you work, it's a calling. And so I had this sense, I had, you know, I'd been to Bible school, come out. And so I thought I'm going to go to China and be a missionary. That was my heart. And then I found myself in this job and I was, you know, God, what am I doing here? And I, you know, I just had a, a moment where I saw all these people and I had a sense that, you no, know, this is where I'm, this is the mission field. And so for nine years, I sat on it or for however length of time it might be for anyone. I just sat on it, prayed and thought, okay, God, what do you want to do? And then eventually we, I, I got, I found out who the Christians were in the organization and we came together and started meeting together. And uh, we would pray, we would share, we would do different things. And then it got to a point where I felt that very strongly, you need to do an alpha course. And I'd never heard anybody do an alpha course in the workplace. So I was petrified, how am I going to do this? What am I going to do? So again, I sat on it for a while, prayed over it and everything. And um, I thought, who can I speak to in HR about this? Because I knew I needed permissions to get it done. And um, I sat on it again, just thinking and, and waiting on God for it. And a lady's um, face just kept coming to me. So I went up, I went, found her and told her uh, what we were about to do. She, um, I don't know if she was a Christian or not, but she said, oh, I've heard about Alpha, send me an email and we'll do something. And so she gave us permissions. We did it. We advertised around the building. A few people looked and thought, you know, how on earth could you do that? But we, I was, I think at that time I was quite naive. I just did whatever came to my heart to do. So we did the Alpha course, we invited people. We even had an away day. Uh, and uh, Pastor Kemi came and did the away day for us. And people from work came to the away day um, and we did that. So we did different things in the workplace. We did a Christian, at Easter, we decided to do a Christianity Awareness Week where we, for every day, um, we had a speaker coming at lunchtime to do a talk. 
Uh, Jonathan Wiltz was one of the people that actually came. He did a talk on evolution and creation. The room was packed with people. Most of them came to antagonize, but they heard it anyway. And it was very positive, uh, the outcome eventually. So when I finished at Ealing Council, I left there and started working for an organization called Transform Walk UK. Now they support Christians in the workplace by encouraging them to do exactly what I had done to, to come together and form groups. So as a result of working there, I was the lead ambassador. So I had about a hundred, over a hundred groups that I was taking care of. So I was able to go to places like Barclays, like um, GlaxoSmithKline, places like uh, British Petroleum, different councils around the country, um, aerospace, hydrographic office and all these places where you would think it's, it can't be done. But there were Christians meeting together, you know, and their the aim in Transform Work UK was pray for the organization. Nobody would ever say, don't pray for me. If they know that there's a praying presence, they would, they would, they, they support that. Um, another thing about equality. Sorry, sorry, Elizabeth, just before you go on, I just want to clarify. So what, yeah. because we've heard lots of examples today, yeah. people who've had difficulties or have been prohibited from doing anything or expressing their Christianity. What you're saying is based on your experience, there are possibilities. Like how, how would somebody find out what these possibilities are? That's a good, that's a good question. The main thing, I know that there's a lot of negative propaganda about the equality, diversity and inclusion, but one of the things that it does, it gives us a platform. It gives everybody a level playing field. You have a platform where there's so, there are nine other protected characteristics within that um, legislation that allows for the equality, diversity framework. There are nine characteristics, but one of them is religion and belief. And if, if that is there, that was one of the catalysts. When I asked the lady at Nature, why did you allow us to do the Alpha course? She said, if any other group within the council wants to do it, they can do it. But the thing is, nobody knew they could do it under that piece of legislation, the Equality Act 2010. So because uh, a lot of people don't know that they can have that, uh, it's like a door. It's like an opportunity that if you know how to use that opportunity, you can have a lay, level playing field with so many of the other diversity groups. That's so, so, uh, so important, Elizabeth. I don't, I don't mean to cut you off at all. Yes. I'm actually going to uh, just go to the email you sent in. Um, that's very, very important. But what, what I would like to say is that people like Elizabeth are very active in this area. And uh, she is looking to um, do a number of workplace uh, webinars in this year, how-to sessions for us on as members in the marketplace. For example, how to take your faith to work, which is a repeat one. How to engage with equality, diversity and inclusion. How to engage with staff networks, diversity groups. How to set up and build a Christian group at work. Finding purpose in work. So what we will uh, do, Elizabeth, thank you for that contribution. And we'll look, look to, I wanted to mention those things clearly today so that we can take it further. And uh, members of the church and the panel will know that we've got more to come where we can take people further into this kind of Christian activism. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you so much. 
Thank you. Thanks so much, Colin. Um, Andrew, if you're around still, a question had come in quite early. And while it's asking the question of youth and young people, I think the question is ap applicable to all ages and throughout the congregation, which is, as next steps, how do we educate our young people? So how do we educate in general? Yeah, um, how we educate is, is first we have, to, we have to listen. We have to generate relationship. We have to communicate. We need to find out how they think, why they think, um, and what other things are affecting their thoughts. So for example, <clears throat> critical theory and all this stuff, this is subliminally affecting a lot of them. And, um, and if, if, if God's word isn't a reference point, then you, you, you have no, you can't sieve the truth. Anything that is being taught, taught by you will, will, will naturally be received. So first of all, we have to listen to them. We need to find out why, because when you, when you can see what they're seeing, then what comes out of your mouth will, will be that much more accurate. And also you have to know what, they, what they're looking to do as well. There are young kids who, who, who want to be activists, but there are young kids who want to, to teach. And I feel sometimes um, um, both sides have to be touched. On a grassroots level, yeah, we need to educate. Um, on, on, on a right now um, level, um, there are things to be done. There are, like, for example, Pastor Collins said, um, healing. There are so many young people who are so angry, why? Because the love of God hasn't been ministered to them by the church, for example. So for example, what, what do I mean by that? They're, when will they be restored to a place of peace again? Because they've been agitated by some of the things that they've experienced and that they've seen and that they've hurt. So there's so many things that we can do. And I, I, I realized that, first of all, let's get into contact with them. Let's speak to them. Let's listen to them. And before we start quoting scripture, let's find out their perspective. Let's listen to them. And then from that place of relationship, then we can minister with the spirit of God and with the word of God at a level of accuracy that can actually not only illuminate, but then direct them to be active, to be active in their schools, to be active on their roads, to be active in their little hemispheres of, of friendships, be it on social media or be it anywhere. So I believe there's, there's, there's so many things that, that, that can be done, but specifically for the young people, you, you first have to find, you have, you have to come close to them. You have to start off a relationship there. And then once that's been established, oh my goodness, there's, there's so many things that can be done. And quite frankly, that they want to do, it's just showing them the way. Uh, I, can't, I can't hear you, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Sorry about that, uh, Davinja. If you would unmute, do you have anything to add in this whole area of what do we do next in terms of educating people? Hi, Ron. Did you did you say Davinda? Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, Ron, Ron, Pastor Colin, thank you for putting this on. There's so much thought that's gone in there, and I'm really learning a lot. It's very interesting uh, to understand that critical uh, theory is an opposing worldview uh, to Christianity. Because if I have to ask myself, what is my true concern? I would say it's probably in the area of activism, uh, particularly education. I have a son I'm watching closely. Uh, what he's learning at school. And I do pray for the children and I pray for their education. And my expectation of education is that there, there's information that would be imparted that would reveal something to themselves about who they are and the world that they live in. And of course that's taking place. 
But the problem is there's a huge amount of revisionism uh, that's incorporated into all of this. And I think it's creating a lot of weakness. Um, and, you know, I think earlier it was mentioned about the sort of mental health issues that young people are facing. Uh, David Parfit mentioned about the, uh, you know, the plaster that, that's being put on a lot of roofs. And, and if I think about, you know, Ephesians 4.12, what does it say? Equip his people for works of service to become mature and not to be tossed around by the world. But actually, if, if children, uh, they fall into this uh, sort of woke revisionism, they can spend their teens. And I've seen people spend their 20s and 30s. They don't know who they are. Okay, they don't know why they're here and they don't know what they're here for. So the consequences, they do get tossed around by the world and it creates an awful lot of weakness. My real concern is that Christianity, Christians and Christianity is becoming lukewarm and weak. You know, the Jewish community, they revile this stuff. If you look at the, the Islam and the minority um, cultures, they are supported even by their local councils when they decide not to send children to these schools. You know, what attracted me to Christianity is it's, it's a religion of forgiveness and it's a religion of, of real love and, and uh, reconciliation. But why do we have to reconcile ourselves to allowing our children to be educated? You know, when it comes to uh, science, uh, nature programs, the children are encouraged to, to watch. They're heavily biased towards uh, man-made uh, climate change. You know, it's, it's good that we should become environmentally aware uh, the, the, the damaging effects of, of, of consumerism. Um, but they're more overly focused on the devastating effects of uh, humanity. Um, nature is something that's to be revered. Uh, you know, people are a problem. If you look at, uh, you know, what, what they're learning in terms of religious education. So these, these are two uh, booklets that I have from his school. He goes to a Christian school. Um, in, in Wandsworth. Now this, this booklet has actually been produced by the school and the title is Origins, Faith, Reason and Science. And I have mentioned uh, something about this to Pastor Colin and his, his comments were very, very helpful. Christianity is approached in a Christian school from the controversies that are associated with creation and intelligent design. There is no full presentation of what Christianity is. Uh, there's no concept of, of salvation. If I look through this, and I, I'm, I'm happy to reproduce it for anyone that wants it, uh, you've got Christian theories of creationism, you've got Christian theories of science. Christianity is actually completely comparative, but there's no, uh, there's an assumption of a baseline uh, understanding of Christianity, but it's not actually there. Jesus, Jesus, and, and this, this, was, this was the curriculum for Christianity in the first term. Uh, Jesus is relegated to a moral teacher and you've got two black and white pages at the very back of the book but that's that's their teaching of Christianity. Islam produced by the school this was actually posted this is the only uh, textbook that's actually ever been posted to us the whole the whole book it's talking about ideology of Islam as a complete world religion it's talking about the traditions of Islam it's talking about the culture of Islam you know, what it is like to be a Muslim today, actually what it's like to be persecuted as a Muslim today. There, there is a whole passage that members see Islam as a threat to British life. Children are supposed to understand, you know, and discuss that from a, uh, you know, a Muslim perspective. The back two pages are actually talking about miracles of Islam. 
I mean, it's so disproportionate and Christianity is completely uh, marginalized. I'm really looking forward uh, to get involved in the Giants. I'm really hoping that we can get behind it because, you know, Chris, Christians need to stand up. We really need to stand up. There is actually a, um, an agenda here. Uh, and I'm seeing it increasingly through my, you know, through my son as he proceeds through the education. So taking the example of David, I actually am prepared to uh, become a governor in the school. But what I want to understand is what the school professes to be teaching and how the teaching and the materials actually deviate. I want to try and support the teachers because I think a lot of teachers will, will need support and they are sympathetic. But unfortunately, a lot of the parents um, involvement. They're basically information dissemination groups, but we need to get in touch with the teachers. I have actually got in touch with some of the teachers and I will have a meeting, but I don't want to go in in a militant way. And I'm also aware that there are other parents that have many children in the school, you know, and they don't want their children's uh, education to, to be affected as, as I don't want my child's education to be affected. So I have to do it in a, in a very uh, sort of sensitive way. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to learn uh, from the Giants and I'm already learning from people uh, who have gone through this process of, of being school governors and having children go through the education system, uh, how to address it. Thank you, Davinder, and sounds like a good practical next step. Um, one of our panel members has just reminded us that we can join organizations like Christian Concern um, and so the important thing is for each of us to do something and not wait for something to happen here. Colin, do you have any closing comments, particularly in this area of um, Christian activism is great, but we've got to see it in perspective, we've got to hold the call of Jesus Christ in front of us, salvation as the ultimate goal? Yeah, indeed, very, very briefly. Um, I, we do have a bonus video coming up. Um, with our very special guest today, um, uh, former President uh, Barack Obama. Actually, it's a video, but still, anyway, that's that was a good um, way of uh, presenting that. Uh, yeah, so in terms of our response, we have to reject critical theory as a worldview, but look at some of the positives, find common ground, and build together. I think that uh, the, the point that Andrew made is very high on the agenda. We need to listen to one another. And, and what I am concerned about is that people will take away from this webinar the false impression that we're saying, look, um, ignore the hurts, ignore the pain, ignore what people have, have gone through. No, we begin by listening. And while I do not accept that another person's, any person's lived experience is the sole criterion of truth, I do understand that people's personal experience is very informative and it produces empathy. Empathic understanding, empathic listening to one another, allowing people to express what the pain that they feel. Uh, particularly young black people, uh, their parents were shocked by what their, uh, after George Floyd, what was conversation was being raised around the dinner table. And uh, parents, black parents of black children didn't know 
what their kids have been experiencing and feeling because there's just been maybe not this sense of permission to talk about it. I think it's very important to give that kind of permissioning. Very important too that we um, uh, look at the right kind of Christian activism. And that means, yeah, going in in the right way, putting redemption high on the agenda. We have an opportunity, not just for individual healing, but for the healing of society. Um, and that can only happen through honest, frank, listening, talking and sharing and really accepting and receiving one another. I think personally, and maybe uh, I don't know how historically sound my impression is, but I believe that uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu was highly used by God during a very painful time in post-apartheid South Africa. And he uh, did this through a Truth and Reconciliation Commission where people were able to talk about their feelings and uh, for, you know, look, we look beyond anger to pain. When somebody hurts you, the first emotion is not anger. The first emotion is pain. And sometimes be behind people's anger, there, lie, there, there lie, lies deep pain. And to be able to say that what a message we have, Jesus is the reconciler, the unity, the identity we have in Christ. There is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek. You all, you all know the passage. That doesn't mean to say we don't own and celebrate our differences, whether they're cultural, racial, and our experiential differences, they're marvelous. They add to the picture, but also not to sweep things under the carpet and neither to go in with a very aggressive anti, anti this, anti that. I would wish we were known not by what we're against, but known by what we are for. Our message is essentially a positive message. And so we're going to follow this up. We're not going to be able to put a 10 point plan of action in place by one o'clock. We will follow this up and look how it works throughout all of the giants. And I've been enormously encouraged by your uh, contributions. All of you will look carefully through the questions and comments. Um, haven't been able to follow them all. We'll look at those and we'll look at how we can also, please we invite more and more comments and uh, in so that we can move forward as a church and we probably will get a, a, a subgroup of people who will be like a kind of working group who will say, all right, we've heard a lot, how, let's sort this out. What can we do? What's, what are some of the next steps in a practical way? And support one another, pray for one another. Uh, Peter McIlvenner, I think he's still, he's still with us. Well, uh, Peter McIlvenner, amazing job you, they're doing. Elizabeth, what an amazing job you are doing. Um, all of you and, and uh, standing up for Christ. There's so much that is already happening and we can be encouraged by that. Okay, Ron, that, that's my summation. You don't need Thank to hear you. from me again. Don't Thank forget Barack Obama before we go. Yeah, yeah. We'll end with uh, Barack Obama. But um, with a group of over 300, uh, it's possible that there are visitors there. Those of you who um, do not know anything about Kensington Temple, if there are any questions you have for us as a church, you can email us at info at kt.org or call the number 0207 
908-708-1700. We would love to have a chat with you. But as I promised earlier on, um, it took a lot to pull today off. And there are several constituent parts, actually. So to just to let you know, we're going to try and post four or five things up on our website. All of the PowerPoints that Colin used in his teaching, um, the five training and teaching videos, the notes from that we were used that we used uh, to support or our teaching, and also the a master recording of everything that you've heard today. So just to let you know, keep your eyes on kt.org. Um, we'll push an, an, a notification email out as well to let you know exactly when that's going to take place. We might have to do a little bit of editing, but it should be done relatively quickly. And there's so much there for you. Thank you for those who worked so hard for us to pull this off, starting with the panel members. I know many of you got a surprise call from you for me yesterday <laughs> and uh, did some preparation last night, came across really, really well. It's helped us all to grasp the subject much, much better. Colin, for the enormous amount of work you have done, my friend, in the last few months, you've trained us all, got us interested in the subject. And when I started this journey, oh, it was probably a couple of months ago, I found it so complex and Colin's really encouraged us. So thank you so much for keeping us um, focused and with a clear vision in mind. And I thought today um, we've done the best we can and we've delivered what we can in terms of helping the congregation. So appreciate your and Amanda's leadership there. And thank you for those behind the scenes as well, Michelle, who helped us technically today. And some amazing behind the scenes technical support to get those five videos done today. Let me tell you, it took a lot, a lot of work to meet those deadlines. It was only filmed on Thursday, actually, and we had to get it ready for today. So thank you so much. These webinars would not be the same without you. The response has been amazing, both in terms of attendance, as well as your participation on the chat and the quality of the questions. If there's anything we have not had a chance to answer, we will keep this dialogue going. As Colin said, this is not a one-off. We will continue to have this dialogue going and we'll have an opportunity. But let's, as we leave today, listen to a very short clip from Barack Obama on his perspective on woke. And then after that, it'll be, have a blessed Saturday for everyone. And we'll be in touch really soon. So over to that video, Michelle. You know, this, this idea of purity and you're never compromised and you're always politically woke and all that stuff, I, you should get over that quickly. The world, the world is messy. There are ambiguities. People who do really good stuff have flaws. People who you are fighting may love their kids. And you know, share certain things with you. And 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 I think that one danger I see among young people, particularly on college campuses, Malia and I talk about this. Yara goes to school with my daughter. Um, but I do get a sense sometimes now among certain young people, and this is accelerated by social media. There is this sense sometimes of the way of me making change is to be as judgmental as possible about other people. And that's enough. Like if I tweet or hashtag about how you didn't do something right or used the word wrong verb or then I can sit back and feel pretty good about myself because man, you see how woke I was? I called you out. <laughs> Let me get on TV, watch my show. 
Watch Gronish. Um, you know, that's not, that's not activism. That, that's not bringing about change. You know, if, 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 if all you're doing is casting stones, uh, you know, you're, you're probably not going to get that far. That's easy to do. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a blessed day. And thank you for your hosting, Ron. Excellent job.